Hello and good day. Make sure the mic is up and running again because I fiddled with some things today. Hello. Welcome to another uh, Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream. Um, hopefully you guys have a little bit of back history of what's going on, but as normal we will do a little bit of a recap and then we will also uh, move forward with the story. So thank you all for coming. This is the first stream where I'm using my new webcam I got today. Uh, it is infinitely better than the one that I had before. Um, it looks like the lighting is amazing. I, I didn't change any of the lighting. The camera itself improved. I have more lighting to put in here still. So it's you know, that fish tank, for some reason the plants are reflecting green in the light though, but the fish tank's leaving here very, very soon. So uh, definitely I'm, I've got some things to uh, change and move around now <clears throat> because uh, now you can see much more of the area around me than you used to. Um, so we'll, I'll probably be tweaking with it over the next few days to get it to where I want it to be, but I'm very excited. Um, I've wanted this webcam for a year <laughs> and they keep being out of stock because everybody's working from home. So when it finally popped up there, I used the chance to snag one. So, hello. So we are going to do a bit of a recap of the last story. Uh, face the fish tank to us fish in the background would be awesome. Uh, the problem is that the, the lighting on it throws it off a little bit. I'm not not sure. Um, I'll, I'll have to figure it out exactly where I'm going to put it. But I'm still working on it. Um, but yeah, hey, thanks for coming. So, as normal, I'll begin by saying, if you have a good time today, please remember to click like. Uh, if you haven't already, hit subscribe. If you're watching this later, hey, thanks for joining us. Um, so, where we left off in the story two weeks ago, because we did not have Emerge Worlds last week. Last weekend was Members Weekend. Um, our heroes had successfully defeated the evil that had forced the dwarves of Corman out of their ancestral home for the last couple hundred years. Uh, they had traveled throughout the Dwarven Kingdom fighting all sorts of demons and monsters until they successfully had defeated them and saved the land. Returning to the surface, uh, <laughs> my dad says, can now bask in the glory of the beard. The beard is definitely more, I realize I need a trim. I'm going to need to go get a beard trim. It is, uh, yeah, it's much more visible now. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so yeah, we're, uh, they had traveled to the service where celebrations were had. Uh, people got intoxicated. And then um, they were going to wait while um, the Dwarven Smiths repaired the broken magical artifact spear, Menandra. They were told this would take a while, at least two weeks to a month, for them to take back, clear the forge, and start being able to use it again. So our heroes were just going to kind of hang out until then. But life always has a way of popping up for these guys and keeping them busy. Their ally, the dwarf named Cole, who had been their guide and pal on the adventures deep within the kingdom, had come to them and said, you guys are pretty powerful. And we just did some serious mojo together. Um, his ancestral home, down in the lowest level of Corman, uh, where his clan, the Ventoy, lived, uh, 
has been sealed off for several hundred years, even before the major incident that pushed everybody out. There was some type of plague or illness where his clan had basically sealed the doors and they've never been out since. Um, the Ventoy, which were one of the most powerful and wealthy clans of Corman, the few Ventoy that were out in the lands um, outside of the city when this happened were really the only ones that survived. So he'd always had a dream of somehow getting down there and seeing if there was a way to take back his ancestral home. Uh, he'd been made aware by the thane of his clan, the current one, that there was a secret entrance that would get them inside of the Ventoy clan chasm, cavern, I guess you'd say. Um, and that it had been a secret because no one could get down that close to, for it to be a, an issue anyways. He'd asked the, our heroes to join him in a, going down there and checking that out because Artemis is by far the most powerful healing cleric they've ever had in these areas that he knows of. And if anyone might be able to clear the plague or disease that's down there, if it still is, would might be her. Surprisingly, before anyone else could say anything, Artemis agreed. Uh, being a cleric of healing, plagues and diseases and things of that nature is kind of what she's against. So she agreed herself that she would go down even if none of the other allies did. Which, of course, they all did. Because they're not going to let Artemis, the squishy, wander off alone. And that's where we left off. It takes a couple of days for the dwarves to fully prepare the force that's going to go into Corman. Um, again, their goal is to make sure at this point uh, a large enough force is going in that should there be any stragglers of uh, monsters or demons in there that they can hopefully be wiped out. While they believe the characters were successful, they have to be sure before they let all the innocent folks just come on down in here and, and climbing up again. Their goal at first is to take Upper Corman. If they could take Upper Corman and start to live there, then they can start making their way down, basically cleaning up and rebuilding their kingdom. Uh, but at least in Upper Corman, they would feel like they're back at home. It would be a huge morale boost, um, and definitely other dwarves would probably start flocking to Corman, even dwarves that weren't from Corman. Maybe dwarves who were from other worlds would say, hey, here's a dwarven kingdom in an area that's all human and elves and minotaurs, a place that maybe we can find a home as well. So Corman's hoping to attract others to increase their people as well. But after a couple of days of preparation, a large force is prepared to move into Corman. Um, our heroes and Cole are going to go with them. They had spoken with the High, high King, who knows of their quest and has approved of it. Um, but they're not telling anyone else. A, they don't want to get false hopes, right? B, they don't want other people to know there's a secret entrance in case Artemis gets in there and finds out, hey, there is diseases and we can't stop them. We want people trying to sneak in and steal the treasure of the Ventoy, which is immense from Cole and his Thane's uh, description, although they both admit they've never been in there. Also, in return for this, they have offered our heroes that they may each take whatever they can carry from the treasure room. That's from Once that's found, the vault of the Ventoy, that they may take whatever they can carry. Now... That's whatever they can carry. That doesn't mean a chest of holding full. That's not fair. So I made that quite clear. It had to be 
what you can carry on as a regular person. So no anvils. You know, I'm walking out with a magical anvil kind of thing. That's secondary to our heroes. These our heroes are pretty wealthy as it is. Not that they're going to shake their head and say no to more treasure. But helping out the king, why not? Because each has their own plots here, right? Uh, Darsh is wanting to be tr uh, open up trade routes with these dwarves and be the first shipping company to be able to start providing dwarven goods to the other kingdoms in the southern kingdoms area. Mercy is now aware that there's potentially a realm gate in this area, which also opens the options for her. Uh, and Dandy just wants them to hurry and get help her get Michael back. Elmeldad, I sorry to ask a question right at the start, but are there any races in Merge Worlds that you didn't portray in a D&D stereotypical way, if you know what I mean? I kind of know what you mean, I think. Like, a race that acts different than it did in classic D&D. So, like, dwarves who were uh, not miners and diggers and craftsmen, or elves who didn't live in the woods and were fancy pants. Uh, things of that nature. People that played against type, yes. If you're asking that, then yes, there are, and we will come across some of them at times. Um, but yes, yeah, there are people who are definitely against the type that would be the classic elves and dwarves. And that's one example where I mentioned last week, the, uh, the evil Egyptian elves that they found the pyramid of in one of the very f uh, few first few episodes... Um, I wanted to have a just a group of elves who were historically pricks, um, even though they didn't get to meet them specifically. Um, but you know, it was it, that was I was I wanted to have some anti-types there as well. Different rate takes on races. Oh, we're going to see some of those. I promise you, we will. Keegan says isn't related to D and D, but you sometimes they make Titanfall too. I don't know what that is, but I'll take a look at it. Sure, see if it's my kind of game. I mean. I'm assuming it's a game. You say play it. <laughs> I don't care to look. Let's see. Um, so, of course, uh, our heroes are celebrities right now. You know, especially Cole, who everyone views as the leader of the mission, who did all the hard work, and these guys helped. Uh, not really. Dwarves aren't like that. They're a little more... Uh, elves would definitely go that way, but the dwarves are like, yeah, the dwarf, I'm sure he did some heavy lifting, but these are people that managed to pull off what we haven't in several hundred years, so we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, and so they're happy to have them traveling. I guess, again, who doesn't want a cleric of healing of whatever race in the middle of your party? These are warriors. These are And there's clerics here as well. Uh, there are clerics of the, of the mountain god uh, who is going to be traveling as well. But, and they may even be one or two really low-level healing clerics. But nothing like what Artemis is. So definitely <laughs> any military person of any rank is like, what, we got a powerful healer here? I don't care who they are. Yeah, you bring them on down. Let them stand by me. I can, I'll hold their hand. <laughs> What's up, Spicy? So they, of course, then proceed to go in. Uh, the dwarves are eager, um, but they're also patient. They're not in a, in a spot where they have to rush in and, t and move back in. They don't expect to be living here immediately. The Thane knows that they've lost a, over in the original bad days when all this happened. You know, thousands of dwarven lives. He wants to make sure that there's not a situation where any more are going to be lost. So he and soldiers and stuff are going down there with some clerics and, of course, uh, some craftsmen and people that are needed to check on things, like engineers, to make sure the gates are there. If they, 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 they know they closed the gate. It's going to take the engineers to get one open again. 
the one, at least the one that they had to slam shut. So it's going to take some some work. While they're even while they were preparing this, the very first day, several small scouting parties went in. I mean, the Thane had people going in immediately. Um, so there's some people that have already gone ahead to look into some of these things. Uh, also to verify there's no more threat. Uh, Dubrin, who's going to be repairing, he's he's trying to get to his forge. His forge is in the middle level, uh, the central. But he's going to find one on the upper level, one a good dwarven forge of, of clay, and he's going to work on that uh, in there to repair Menandra. Uh, just because it'll take too long. The dwarves again, like I said, they're going to take over upper Corman, start moving in there, and then eventually moving their way down. The Thane is of course eager to get the Thane's. King, or the the actual castle in the in the central level where the thane lives, but again, being very cautious and making sure his people will be safe. Very good king. I, was, I really enjoyed role playing. Just a there's been a lot of good leaders, not counting Ormon, uh, in the merged world thing. So it's nice to have a few. All right, let's see here. That. All right. Okay. So. As the group makes their way down and once again reaches Thanedon's Span, the large bridge that crosses over, um, there's a difference from when the heroes were here recently. Even when they just came back, uh, there is a stink here, a smell. It's not too pleasant. Uh, and, you know, our character's like, I don't remember the stink, but we passed through here pretty quick to get out. You know, but we weren't attacked by any of the Sharnlings or anything, so uh, hopefully that's okay. And as the king starts across the span and start making their way into Upper Corman, um, that's when they start to find all the Sharnling bodies, uh, which are dead and rotting at this point, which is very stinky. Um, our heroes came through a gate and then rushed through as quickly as they could, but they didn't really notice or find many of the dead little Sharnlings, but they're all over the place. None alive. They don't find any living ones anywhere. But this, of course, lets the king know, okay, well, hopefully they're all dead, but we're going to have to do some cleaning before people start moving in. In fact, we're going to need people moving in to help with the cleaning. Um, so he immediately starts setting up a command area where a large group are going to stay here. The en some guards to protect him, engineers, uh, Dubrin, who's going to be working on Menander, but... The king is going to make his way down to Central Corman. Uh, they have no plans going to Lower Corman yet, but he does want to get down to Central Corman and at least see that everything there is okay. He'd like to see the state of the uh, Central Castle, but more than anything else, he wants to get to the bottom of the ro two roads, so that way they can at least try to secure those. So if there is anything on the second or lower level, it'll have a harder time making it up the only two paths that are available. So they spend a couple of days there, getting things set up, making sure everything's good. As the king moves on, runners have gone back. More soldiers will be coming in to defend upper level, while he and the bulk of his current force will continue down. He's decided not to open the one gate that is closed, uh, because this allows him to take his full force down one gate. as one less thing they have to try to defend in the early time. He doesn't have to split his forces down two roads. Uh, so they get to go down the other road that the, our heroes came back up through. They st there's a lot of stopping and starting. They come to the remember we've talked about where there's the you'll get to little areas that's like a, a little break off in the road. It'll be a cavern with some houses in it, little villages and such. 
Uh, they're basically like towns on the side of the road. They There's a stop where the dwarves do a search and make sure there's nothing in there that they're leaving a danger behind them. And each time it takes a little time, but they get through it pretty quickly, and it's pretty successful. Uh, without nothing, and by within the first couple of hours of going down that path, there's no more charneling bodies, and there are no more signs of anything recent other than our dude's footprints who had to come back up there recently. As they make it down, a couple more days, they make it down to the bottom of that road. Here's where our heroes are going to split off. They're going to be going down to the pathway to get down to Lower Corman. Well, uh, the High King is going to secure the two roads and then take a scouting party, his elf, in to look at the actual central castle. See what kind of damage has been done. Because our heroes gave them an idea. Remember I said sometimes walls were smashed in and such. Um, there are also the group of clerics here are uh, hoping as well to swing by the temple and see if they can start getting back in. It was very positive when our hero said that there were no people in there, that were no demons and such in that area that they found. Um, but unfortunately, many of the bodies that were trying to survive in there died. So they're eager to get back into the temple as well because uh, that will be hopefully a safe spot that they can also use as a beacon to their people of, hey, we've taken back the temple, and everybody cheers, and it boosts morale and that kind of stuff, because he knows it's going to be hard. People are going to want to get back down to their homes. The clans are going to want to get back into their clan homes, but to avoid looting or anybody doing anything funky or just risking more uh, more people's lives, the king is only allowing you know the military to come in and check stuff. No one's allowed to go in and checking their homes and moving back in right away. Hopefully that's not too boring. I'm just giving you a heads up on the current state of Thorman. The king wishes our heroes and Cole the best of luck at the bottom of the road as they go off to do their thing. And, uh, you know, once again reminds them, you know, do everything you can, sure, to take back it, but at no point bring a plague back, please. <laughs> you know, that's important. Please do not come back with illnesses. Uh, and they're like, cool, we got that. So our heroes then have to once again travel down to Lower Corman. They spend another couple of days getting back down. It feels very strange to them to be doing this so quickly. Like, this was a big adventure. They were just down here. They did all this stuff. Finally got to return to the service. And three days later, here they are coming all the way back down again. Not what they'd originally planned. Um, let's see... Got that done. The clerics are there. Dwarves in the party. Split off the main group. Here we go. All right. So, Cole leads our group of friends um, along the southern wall, going counterclockwise in this uh, chamber once they reach the bottom, because that's the shortest route to reach the Ventoy clan. And you'll remember that there were two very large doors that were closed, and there was no way in from there. But Cole does have a small map and uh, some information of a secret passageway that they should be able to get through, assuming there's been no cave-ins or anything. You know, it hasn't been maintained in 400, 500 years at this point. And even though he has some very good information, it still takes them several hours to find the entrance which they do. Um, very excitedly. Uh, again, dwarves, very good at carving. Uh, the, the door is impossible to find 
unless you're looking for it. And it's almost impossible to find when you are. But they managed to find the doorway. And of course, immediately, Cole's kind of pushed out of the way while Dandy steps up and says, It's my turn. Gets out her tools and begins to start checking for traps. And finds three in the first five minutes. Uh, Dandy had a very high chance to find traps uh, by this point. And uh, I felt that if dwarves are going to have a secret passageway in and out of their kingdom, they're going to make sure that not just anybody can walk in there. So they're not magical traps. They're regular traps. Um, but there's a poison trap, a rockfall trap, and a tunnel cave trap. So there's three different types of traps as the first five minutes as they're going through. After they passed those three, which Dandy successfully disarmed. She rolled it. She did. They continue. The tunnel is small. Even tight for a dwarf. So as you can imagine, Darsh is literally having to crawl on his hands and knees. And at times turning his head in weird angles to fit his horns through the hallway. Which is not a direct straight hallway. Curves and bends and twists at times. And it is incredibly uncomfortable and painful. Like he's got some bracers and stuff on him. But by the time, you know, he, this, it takes them a good hour and a half of him crawling. They would have went faster if he could have walked. To get through the rock till they finally make it into the Ventoy clan cavern. By the time they get there, his hands, nails are broken. Hands are rubbed raw. Knees and feet have been cut and scratched. Um... So he's actually taken a couple points of damage just from crawling. Um, and Artemis had to use a healing spell on his hands, lest he have a negative roll to his rolls when attacking. Because if you got sore palms, you're wielding swords, that you're not gonna have the regular grip. So Artemis decided to use one of her healing spells to make sure that Darsh was in tip-top fighting condition. And they make it to the Ventoy clan. The air is stale and it is difficult to breathe. It smells much like the many old tombs you've been in. A thin layer of dust and dirt lies on the ground undisturbed. The most notable thing is the silence. Not a sound echoes from the ceiling uh, anywhere, somewhere above you. They can't even see it. Very, very dark. And then they got their... At this point, they got their torch, right? Um, the gem of glowing, the dwarfs told... Ulrich to keep that until they're done in here, and he's going to give it back to them. So he got the gem of brightness, so he still has his light source. They're not as worried about monsters at this point. So having open torches and light and Tobias's staff, they got plenty of light at this point. They're not trying to be sneaky there. They're just trying to make sure they don't die from sickness. Um, everything in there, though, is deathly still. And occasionally you hear just, you know, ground settling and shifting. You're going to hear a little of that, but not a whole lot. Uh, exceptionally quiet and very well built. Even though it's a cavern, the doors would have reinforced and made sure that there's you know pillars and stuff holding it up. I mean, it's going to take a major earthquake to like cause some serious damage down there. If maintained, which it hasn't been. They do not find, at least where they are, uh, they come out kind of in a an area that looks like it was, I wouldn't say a trash area, but it was an area where... Um, stuff was put. You know what I mean? It's like things came in, storage. Uh, maybe there's some buildings that were some type of warehouse type thing as well. Um, and more like, I guess you could say, the seedier side of town. And not from like like poor, but just not as well kept. Because people don't live here. You know what I mean? If you ever go to like a 
a railway yard or something. It'd be in a nice town and everything, but the railway yard always looks a little run down because nobody lives there. And, the, you know, the trains are all graffitied and so on and so forth. So it's kind of that thing. It's not that it's poorly made. It's just not as well cared in this area, even before all of the trouble went down. But as they slowly make their way into the cavern, several things are happening. Right off the bat, Artemis is casting spells. She is doing the spells she has to try to... Find, and some of them aren't even spells. It's just natural powers of a cleric. Anything that would show her that there's like an illness in the air. Like, are they being assaulted by a plague just standing there? And nothing that she has is giving off that there's any type of disease, at least in the air, that's assaulting them at this point. Which means that either it's a disease that's not in the air, um, it's some type of magical disease that she's not sensing, um, or... It's all gone. It's been 400 years since Hane's been in here. It may have just resolved itself. They can't be, can't be too careful, though. So, at the same time, Dandy and Cole, sneaky as they are, are being extra careful, like checking for traps or issues and things of that nature, because while they don't really feel there's, there's going to be any, they're being careful. But there are no tracks, not even animal tracks. There's nothing that would imply that anything has moved around in here in hundreds of years. Hello, Brave. Welcome, sir. So, they begin to start looking around. And as they're moving out of this area into the city proper, this cavern is bigger than any of the other clan caverns by far. It's, it's huge. Um, and they could see large buildings, which would have been the High Thanes Keeps and all of that kind of stuff. Um, what's that, uh, Necro? Uh, oh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a lot easier to see it now, isn't it? I think it's probably the longest I've ever had my beard. I've had this grown out before. I've never really grown this at all. <laughs> yeah, now with the new cam, you can see every individual hair. <laughs> Start braiding it all dwarven, right? <laughs> so they're looking around. They make their way into the city proper. Again, looking for things. Signs of a plague. Signs of illness. Sign of anyone still in here. But with the quietness what they've seen, they don't really think there's probably many, if any, survivors in here at all. Um, let's see. They spend a few hours looking around throughout the city, just trying to get a feel for things. What they do see is a bit of chaos. Um, they, Much like they found in the other caverns, signs of corpses. At least many years ago. Old cloth, still some bones and such. Very different than uh, what they saw before. There's no signs of attack damage, no broken weapons. Although sometimes it would appear that there'd be groups of belongings around the people, um, many of which have rotten, broken, or started to decay. The PCs, our characters, are traveling down a road. They're trying to check in the... It's like a main shop of... A main road of shops and businesses, and they're kind of checking... not going in searching every building, but they're looking around. Um, when suddenly Dandy calls out, pointing ahead, and everyone can see what looks like, in the distance, running away, a little dwarf. And by little, I mean a child-sized dwarf. Not a regular little dwarf, but a child-sized dwarf. Running up and around a corner. They're shocked. The first sign of life they've seen. Maybe people have survived here. And they immediately, quickly take off. Again, being cautious. Because who knows, right? They're not fools. 
Okay, they're kind of fools. But they're not as foolish. So they're careful. But they do move on quickly to try to catch up to the wee lad or last that they saw ahead of them. They're chasing up streets, and every so often when they think they've lost him, they catch a small glimpse again going around a corner. And finally, as they come to an end of a street, they turn and come to an end of a street, they come across what would be a, I guess you could say, almost not a, like a, a garden, right? Like a big area where there'd be benches, water fountain in the middle, probably some type of plants, flower people could sit here and rest or chat, maybe some statues and stuff. And, of course, it's all in not good shape, right? Like any plants that were there are probably dead, maybe a few of them growing a little... You know, just the, like dried up roots, because there's there's no water in here. The dwarves would have had to magically or been very careful to take care of plants to get them to grow in this area, so that anybody to water them, they would have shriveled up and died. Now, the water fountain's not working anymore. There's no water in that. Looks like it hasn't in a long time. Um, just old. Just just say. Um. Let me see here. Okay, so they come to the street, they look inside, they see the small child is sitting next to the fountain, which is no longer working. And they hear the sounds of crying coming from the little dwarf. Now our friends are cautious, right? This seems a little too easy. But at the same time, if it is in fact what it is, they have to at least check. So, with weapons cautiously drawn, <laughs> they quietly and gently make their way to a child. A, they don't want to scare him if he is a real kid. But B, they don't want to get jumped on. And so they enter into the garden. Suddenly, you are completely surrounded. The entire courtyard is teeming with dwarves running around in chaos. Looking around, you realize the fountain is now running again, clear water falling from the statue in the center. The entire cavern is much brighter now. You can see large braziers in the distance, their giant flames and light making most of the cavern visible. And as you look around at the chaos, again, you see the small child crying next to the fountain through the crowd. Again, not you personally, but this is what I read to them. And I like to read it to you the same way I would read it to them in the story. Immediately, weapons drawn back to back. They're like, are we being attacked by dwarves here? But they're watching, and the dwarves don't seem to be paying much attention to them. Cole, seeing, because they look like Cole. Remember, Cole's a darker-skinned dwarf. Cole reaches out to speak to one, but they're, they're ignoring him. He tries in his, well, he tries in common. Even Darsh calls out a few things in Dwarven. Because remember, Darsh is the only one in the group that can speak Dwarven. Uh, other than Cole, who is a dwarf. Obviously. Dandy knows a couple words, Darsh taught her. But most of those are swear words used when drinking. Um, <laughs> so, they... Uh, Cole reaches out to try to get someone to stop. And the dwarf goes right through him like he's not even there. He lets out a startled cry. He was about to draw a sword to defend himself, but the person just runs right through him. And they realize that none of the dwarves in the area are able to see him, any of them, and are acting as if they don't exist. Argyle! They hear a name yelled. Uh, only 
Darsh and Cole understand this, and they will interpret it for the other characters. But this is what they hear. Um, as an older dwarf, they see walking through the courtyard from the other direction towards the child. Argyle cries the older dwarf to the child. What are you doing here? Where be your parents, lad? It's so hard not to do this with a really bad Scottish accent. <laughs> the child mumbles something. Because again, they're only hearing this somewhat. They're, they're close, but they're not right next to you. The child whispers uh, or mumbles something through his tears. The older dwarf smiles down sadly at the boy. Well, come on then, get up. Let's see if we can get you back to them. The young boy takes the older dwarf's hands and stands up. Suddenly you hear a loud booming sound, like a giant door being slammed in the distance. Many of the dwarves around you began running in that direction. Looking around, you can see several dwarven bodies lying on the ground. You notice them at first. Either lying on the ground or against walls, their skin seems to have a strange green coloring to it. Looking back, you see the older dwarf staring off sadly in the distance. He turns to look down at the small child holding his hand. Well, that's it then, lad. They've closed them. Looks like we're on our own. I'm sure the thane's done what's best. Forcing a smile onto his face, the older dwarf starts walking away from the fountain towards one of the nearby streets. The little boy in hand. As the dwarves around you begin to fade and the cavern grows dark once more, you can hear the older dwarf say, Come, lad, let's get you home. Everything returns as it was before they'd stepped into the area. The fountain is back, old, no water. Maybe that's completely dried up at this point. They look around at the area where they saw bodies through the vision, but now where there's rumpled cloth, maybe some bones sticking out of them in the same locations. The, uh, with a few other ones in the area as well. But no signs of battle again. That's important. They, there are no signs of battle. They get to thinking, well, do we follow the ghosts? What do we do now? This is part of the story. I gave them a, a large amount of birth. Like, where do you want to go? And so they ask Cole, what is there to go? What, what could we look at? Are there places of interest that we might want to search first? Because uh, again, nobody really knows what happened in here. Most of the living dwarves from the Ventoy were living outside of the clan area when this happened. That's why they're still alive. There's some information is known by the High Thane as well, because clearly messages were sent out of some kind, and he knows about it. Uh, and they, what, but what has been told has been passed down just through a single generation. 450 years, not a long time for dwarves. That's one, maybe two generations at time. So again, looking around, searching the bodies. No signs of damage, like anyone's been attacked. Um, no broken weapons, the type of stuff they saw when they were looking in the area where the demons had clearly taken out the dwarves. Um, the bodies look like they just fell over and died. So again, they begin making their way through the city. First, they try to follow the, the direction the old dwarf went with the little boy, but 
The roads here are very... There's many of them. They're in the middle of a city. It doesn't take long. They, they don't know where to go. There's, the ghosts aren't visible again. They faded off as they went down that street. But they head that direction and kind of just start looking around. No. As they were walking down the streets again, looking for more signs of the little ghost boy or more signs of something plague. And occasionally now, as they're paying a bit more better attention, what look like just old lumps of maybe trash in an alley or next to a building uh, is now more noticeable of, oh, that's clothes. That's, that's someone who died there. Um, and that little lump of dust-covered lump was what they were, whatever they were wearing. Regular clothing, not armor, not well-weaponed. Maybe occasionally a guard, right? Because there's still some city guards, but most of them just what you'd expect a regular dwarven lad or lass to be wearing. As they're traveling down the streets, making their way again, looking in windows, looking for signs, knocking on doors, not real loud, like, so if someone's inside could hear it, but they're not, there's some, you know, a dragon down the hallway. They don't want him to hear it. There's not a dragon. But I'm saying, they're, they're still being careful and cautious about what they're doing. They're moving very quietly. But they're also aware that they have a torch and a magical staff lighting things up right now. Anybody in here is going to know they're here. It's light walking around the city that hasn't had light in it in 450 years. So they're not trying to be hidden. But at the same time, they're not trying to wake anything up, if that makes sense. That's the way they said it. We wanna, we're not trying to be subtle. But we're not trying to wake anything up. Which I like that. So they realize, you know, talking to Cole, there are a few different things that they can look for. Um, or come look. There's the Thane's Keep. Large building in the back against built into the back of the cavern. Um, there's, of course, the temple. They have a temple as well. Every clan has their own temple. Even though the main temples out there were, you know, everybody, they, everybody has their own temple. Uh, there's also the city gates, uh, which were closed. They've seen the outside of it, but they haven't seen the inside of it. And then there is, of course, just look, continuing to look around the city. They were given the choice of what they wanted to do. And looking at the maps, I drew it up for them on a dustboard. They decided that they were going to look around the city a bit more and start making their way around to the temple before they went to the Thane's place. So they wanted to make their way towards the temple, but they wanted to... Try to crisscross. They weren't going straight there. They were trying to continue looking. What they found was a problem. Because about that time, the police showed up. Now that sounds like an odd statement, doesn't it? But it's true. As they're walking down the street, the ground begins to shake a little bit. And Mercy and Artemis and Ulrich, they, Tobias, they're like, whoa, from it there. They feel like they're... And Darsh as well. Everybody's like, ugh. The only people who don't, aren't affected are Cole and Dandy. Cole because he's a dwarf and just very low to the ground. And, and Dandy because she's so agile, it's going to take a lot to knock Dandy over. Everybody else gets wobbled for a minute. Dandy and Cole look like they're surfing. I mean, they're... Uh, has so much better quality. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's quite the change in such a such a wider view. You can see so much more of the room. You can see my thirteenth warrior poster over there, and you can see my matrix poster over there because this world needs more Keanu pictures in here. I agree, but I'm definitely gonna have to redecorate. The, I have to rethink this now because you can see so much more. I'm gonna have to redo my design because that's that's just my printer and my scanner, and that's not very attractive. 
I gotta find a place to maybe move this around a little bit. Looking at it. I'm trying to figure it out. But thank you. <laughs> so the good news is you can see me much better. The bad news is you can see me much better. <laughs> Alright, so uh, the police show up. And they are suddenly attacked. Now, what would dwarves use for police? Oh, let's see. I can see the desk at the side. Didn't know you had one. Yes. Um, I, this desk is an L-shaped desk that wraps around this way. And I have my work computer right here. So working, doing what I'm really doing when I should be working. You know? And then this is another old desk I've set here. So I'm in like a U-shape. And my PC tower sits right here. And then subwoofer, printer, and scanner on top of each other. Filing cabinet, which really just holds all my liquor. And then the fish tank that's going to get moved out. But yeah, drawers and stuff right here. Pens, pencils, snacks, the important stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. Even more excuse to pick up the pace. Make things for... Definitely, I appreciate it. <laughs> the shelves, I think I'm going to move them all oh, that way a little bit. Maybe move the brown... Get rid of the fish tank and move the brown one a bit more in the corner. So it's definitely off-centered now. But if I put it on this monitor, you can see all the way into and through into my bathroom. And my mother-in-law and wife have asked that that area not be on camera because they do come down through here from time to time doing laundry and stuff and don't want to be on camera. So it's going to be focused this way. So sometimes I'll be looking this way playing games, but the Mars, are, I, I apologize. I'll do my best. Um, so they get attacked. Because just because the dwarves died doesn't mean the earth elementals that were controlled through health protect and serve. Uh, what's going to happen to the Earth Elementals when they don't have anybody watching them anymore? Hang out, wander, stay there. There's not footprints because Earth Elementals can literally just pass through the stone without bothering it. Uh, but here's something walking around and without anyone to control them. They attacked. So they, they fought one Earth Elemental first. An Earth Elemental is not a... Uh, Drifter's butt will be in high def. Widescreen, I think, would probably be the accurate description of that Elemental. <laughs> but, uh... You know, Earth Elementals are no slouch. Well, granted, they're some of the weaker of the Elementals. They're still pretty powerful. And you've got to have some uh, juice to be able to control them. Artemis does not have that ability. Not within her spell set. And Cole is not a cleric. Also does not have the ability to do that. So they have no choice but to fight the Earth Elemental. And luckily, I mean, these guys, weapon-wise, they have stuff that'll work. Uh, this is one of those situations where um, Mercy's best, because her Morningstar being a blunt weapon with the little spike, is more effective than a blade when hitting stone. Um, but even at one point, Darsh, I think, picks up like an old hammer or something he finds and swinging at it a little bit. It doesn't do much because it's not magical, but um, they managed to fight the Earth Elemental down. They actually came across two separate of them in this area. They had to fight two of them because um, it was a random... Every every so I had a timer going, and every so often I rolled to see if one showed up. Purely random. There's a chance there wasn't. So as they're wandering around the streets of the city, because again, this wasn't going to happen at those other places I've named, but as they're making their way through areas... There's random encounters. Kind of how D&D &D works. But in this one, specifically set up for every five minutes, 
there was a 25% chance, I believe, 25 or 30% chance that a Earth Elemental would show up, or they would be wandering into an area where there was one. Uh, they end up fighting two as they traveled through there. But they're successful, took a few smacks, but overall they did okay. Uh, they were more of a... What's the word I'm looking for? A little bit more of a diversion, I would say. Something to give a little bit more combat to the story side at this point. Uh, but the, the Earth Elementals were not linchpins of the story by any means. It was something that I decided I wanted to put in there. So don't read anything into Earth Elementals. That was just something I went on. Um, let's see. All right. Already did that. Okay. So as they're looking through, the, they, they do occasionally go into a building, you know, just to see what's in there. Take a look, see if they can find anybody. They find a shop door with the door. Many of the homes and built shops, the doors are open. Uh, so they will occasionally, some of them will step inside and look. Again, Darsh usually waits outside with Ulrich because uh, Ulrich can't see as well in there and he doesn't want to blind everybody with his gem of brightness. And Darsh is just too big to comfortably fit into many of the smaller homes. Although some of the shops and such are big enough that he could probably get in there. Um, as the others are searching the few buildings they decide to look into, um, they find that most of the buildings have some type of skeleton husk corpses inside. Um, most of the time they're in beds or just laying on the ground in the middle of, of a room. Uh, like someone tried to get, was trying to walk around and just became too weak. Um, but again, never any signs of violence. And that's a big thing I, I stress. There was, there was never anything that appeared like anybody robbed them. Uh, even after they were dead. There's no sign, there's no disarray like someone ransacked the building. Uh, sometimes the building would look a little bit more disheveled, but in those buildings, a lot of times, if the people were, there were corpses there, um, they would find what looked like probably things they were trying to pack or get to leave and just didn't end up making it. Uh, so let's see. Um, so this, basically, this entire cavern is basically a giant tomb. Um, let's see, they see no other signs of life, um, but then they, they decide as they're making their way to, uh, of, they're checking the blocks and such, they traveled, because there was a map, there was a specific map I drew out of approximately what the city looked like, and I apologize, I didn't draw it myself, I drew it on an dry erase board, so I have a picture of it, um, but I knew of a place on the map, and I was watching to see where they chose to go. And based on their decisions, something did happen. Please, please, you have to help me, the dwarf maiden cries. You spin quickly, drawing your weapons. She quickly steps up to you and then, much to your surprise, walks right through you. Once again, you realize the cavern is lit. And looking around, you can see other dwarves going about their business. The scene is much more calm and it looks like just another regular day in the Dwarven Kingdom. Everything except the young maiden. What's the problem, my child? asks an older dwarf on the street, walking up. It is clear, he is clearly a cleric, and the holy symbol of the mountain god hangs from his neck. It's Mida, exclaims the young woman. He's sick. I think he's dying. Now, now, calm down, says the dwarf cleric. I'm sure it'll be okay. Tell me, what are his symptoms? Well, says the girl, last night he was working in his forge. I was bringing him some dinner and found him on the ground unconscious. I helped him to his bed, 
but overnight he just only got worse. He's so weak he can't speak or move. He coughs all the time, and the worst part is that his skin is turning this sickly green color. At this point, the young woman breaks out in a fit of coughing herself. The cleric pats her on the back. Honestly, lass, you're looking a bit ill yourself. I've never heard of such an illness. Come, let's get back to your father and see what we can do to get you both feeling well. The two of them start walking east down the road, the young woman leaning on the cleric for support. How sad, says a nearby dwarf to her companion. Aye, says her friend. Strange flu indeed. Hope it doesn't spread. Their voices fade away as the images around you disappear. Hello. Patches has decided to visit. Hey, Katie. <laughs> so once again, this happens and it fades away. Again, they're like, well, do we continue towards the temple? Or do we head towards the direction these ghosts went? They didn't really find anything the last time when the ghosts went. But they kind of discussed it for a few minutes and figured out what's going on. Oh, Panda says, got to head to bed. Have fun with the rest of the story. We'll do, Panda. Hopefully you get a chance to listen to it later. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And thank you for coming and hanging out with us today. Isn't that right, Patchy? After some discussion, they decide they're going to go in the direction that the young lass and the old dwarven cleric went. Um, because they got to talk about it. Like, they're being shown, these visions are appearing. Would they appear for everyone? Is it because they're the first people here? Is it because Artemis is here? Is it because Dandy's here and the dwarves want to kender out of their kingdom? I mean, that's possible too. Dwarves have started wars for less to get a kender out of your house. Um, but they decide that they're going to continue in the direction that she went. And they're checking along the stores and shops. Um, now, Dandy specifically brought up, you know, that she mentioned her father was working in a forge. So at this point, while they're walking and working their way down the, the shops and the homes, they begin looking for businesses that would have a forge in it. So they're skipping places that have signs that say leatherworking, cobbling, things of that nature. Because both Darsh, well, mostly coal, but Darsh can make out some of it as well. Because every dwarf clan has a little bit different dialect. But Darsh is normally able to make out most of it, and coal can read them to them perfectly fine. So they start traveling around looking for some type of businesses that would have a forge. And they find a few, you know, blacksmith, armorer, weaponsmith, just regular things of that nature. Even glassblowing would have a forge. So they start looking into the different shops and businesses. And the other ones, like seamstress or general store, they kind of skip past those looking for forges. They travel about six blocks before they get to what is known as the trade district. Um... So there were shops and stuff all suppressed, but these ones are larger shops. Uh, a bit more better off, more dedicated to specific um, wares, if you would. Um, and as they're looking around, they find an area that has several smithies right next to each other. Um, and some that are specifying swords, some are specifying you know, knives or hammers. And they check them all. As they're making their way, they come across one called the Axe Edge Smithy located smack dab in the middle of the forge area. Um, and they make their way inside, just like the others. Um, searching the room, or the, the, the home, they're up front first, and they move into the personal quarters. They're, the home is built onto the back of it, so whoever worked the shop lived here as well. Um, and they find 
two, I guess you'd say, remnants of corses. Clothing with skeletons in them, kind of thing. And most of the skeletons have even started to fade. Um, both of them are, appear to be in beds in a different room. Um, from what they can find in the room and from, you know, what hasn't decayed, they can tell one of them was female, one of them was male, based on what they're wearing, what's left of what they're wearing, the decorations, that kind of thing. Hey, sweetie. Hello, Brad. And hello, Saber. Good day. So, they then start making their way to the back of the area, uh, of the area where the smithy is actually listed. Or set up. They walk through the door in the same order they normally do. Dandy and Cole are usually up front, followed by Darsh, except he's waiting outside in this situation. Because this one, well, it's a store. Still, he's getting tired of hunching over to fit into these places. So he and Ulrich are waiting outside. Uh, Tobias and Artemis are kind of in the back with Mercy in the, in the rear. Same kind of normal list as they go. They walk into the smithy. Dandy and Cole see nothing unusual. Looks normal. Uh, Tobias walks in. Things look fine. Uh, Artemis steps through the doorway and immediately is hit with a wave of nausea and sickness. Worse than anything she felt while she was pregnant with Sarah. Uh, she just feels this waft of ill like washing over her. And she's Visibly stops and shakes a bit. Mercy, reach, who's behind her, reaches out and grabs her. And he's like, are you okay? And Artemis knows that there's something wrong. She can feel there's something in this area. She tells this to her companions. And they start to very carefully start searching the room. They don't find any bodies. They don't find anything strange. Except. Dandy. While looking around the side of the forge. Finds area where there's. Bunch of coal stacked up and, you know, busted, you know, bucket of probably scrap metal, things that came off of things that were being made and thrown in there, pieces that didn't work out right that were tossed. And there's a bucket sitting there next to the forge. And inside of it are five pieces of ore. Thing you'd smelt down, hammer out. It looks kind of like it's an iron ore. Uh, but it has a, it's more of a, a darker color, closer to black, and it has a weird greenish tint in spots. Dandy, knowing that they're being careful, does not touch anything, but immediately calls out to everyone else. Artemis comes closer, and as soon as she stands next to the bucket, she knows that there's something wrong. Like, she, she's, it's all she can do not to just vomit. It just, it's just radiating in her mind, a stank. Although to everyone else, they, they don't smell anything at all. To them, it's just a bucket of rocks. Looking around a bit more, they find a blade on the forge. Looks like it was probably half-made, hammered out, but not really shaped yet. Um, and it the metal, again, has the same kind of tint to it as the five pieces of ore. Artemis goes and checks out the blade. And he's like, well, how's this do? And the blade does not give off any issues at all. She says, no, it's just the bucket. That, the, the, the bucket or the rocks in the bucket that are the problem. So they begin casting some spells, both her and Tobias, and they determine that there's no magic in that bucket. 
the rocks aren't cursed or anything of that nature. There aren't any... Oh, hello, Patchy. Yeah, there aren't any, you know, curses or spells that are cast upon it. It appears to be just some type of ore that, to be honest, even Cole, who knows more about ore than any of them, uh, he said, I've, I have no idea what it is. I've never seen an ore like it. They begin to try to talk about, well, what should we do to take care of this? And then Dandy coughs. And everybody's eyes are like, what? And she's like, I felt a tickle in my throat and then coughs again. Immediately, they start making their way out of the forge area into the front room. Artemis calls Dandy to her and immediately starts casting spells of purification. And as she's doing it, it's like something's pushing back. Like there's a something fighting back against her spell. But Artemis' power is strong enough that after casting, she can tell that she does manage to heal Dandy, and Dandy's like, okay, I, I feel fine. All I have was a tickle in my throat. But Artemis knows that's not the case. There was something more to that. And now she's worried about everybody else that was in that room. And she tells them, clearly, Dandy had a problem, and Dandy's been cured. Dandy can't go back in there at this point. But I don't know what has happened, or who has it, or how. But nobody touch each other. Nobody breathe on each other. If you got a cough... Yeah, this, for the record, I wrote this long, long before the current medical issues that are going on in this country. Please do not take this as my speak on politics or whatever. It's not that. I wrote this many years ago. <laughs> just dawned to me in this moment. <laughs> Put your mask on, six feet. I just, I just dawned to me that we're at that. That is not what, why this is here. <laughs> Spider in her throat or something. Um, Artemis decides that she is going to go in the room. And of course, Mercy is immediately not okay with this. And Artemis is like, because of she's a cleric of healing, she has some natural resistance against illnesses, sickness, plagues, things of that nature. One of the perks of being that type of cleric. Um, she's like, I have a more of a resistance. And she goes, right now? She's like, I can look at you guys. You are looking like you're getting stuffy nose. Your eyes are watering a little bit. And he just sneezed. I feel fine. Everyone needs to hang out here a minute. I'm going to have to go in there. So she does. She goes back in and she starts looking around and she starts searching the area herself. Not only is uh, it dusty and, you know, because no one's been in there in a while, but it's a mining place. It's ore, forge and stuff. There's black powder and dust from the hammer in the forge, the you know smoke and such. So it doesn't take long till she's filthy, right? Because she's wearing a light blue robes. And there's covered in smudge and soot. And she's going around. She's being careful. Like she's you know, gently poking things with her staff and then digging through when she can, making sure she doesn't touch any of the room. And she searches everywhere in the room. It takes her about 20 or 30 minutes. And while she's doing that, occasionally she'll hear a cough or a sneeze coming from the room behind her. But in her mind, she's like, I could heal them, but then they might just get sick again. I've only got so many healing spells. She's not feeling ill at all yet at this point. So she searches the room top to bottom over 20 to 30 minutes, doing her best to ignore the sounds of sickness from the room behind her. And after she's done a thorough search of this area, she determines that there are no more of that type of ore than just the five pieces in the bucket and 
that one piece of metal, which she picks up the metal. She takes a gamble on that. And it doesn't feel, she's not feeling that repugnant uh, when she's touching it. So she starts thinking, okay, if it's something wrong with the ore, then maybe heating it up, hammering it out, got rid of it. But maybe it was too late at that point. Because, I mean, someone's going to have to pick it up and move it if they're going to start... I mean, yeah, it's just weird. These are big chunks. They're not like little pebbles. These are big chunks. It's a big metal bucket. It's not the kind you pick up and carry. And I should have clarified that earlier. It's more like a big metal bucket that you would throw that the person would go in with the big tongs and put it on the forge or whatever the case is. And even if you use the big... You know, talking about the big thing, it looks like a big hook. Like you use for big ice blocks. Grab the rock and set it up there kind of thing. You're still going to move it around and hammer it and chip stuff out. You're still going to touch it. It may have gotten in the bucket by you unloading it out of something, you know? So, But she sees the big pincher tools that are there, and she grabs those, and she lifts one up, and it's heavy. Artemis, not the strongest person. Uh, but she hmm, strains and gets one up where she can look at it. And as soon as she takes it out of the bucket, she feels an even stronger wash of that illness wash over her. And she looks back down in the bucket, and where they were piled, it almost made like a little pocket inside. When she pulled that up, the inside of it is an even moldier looking green. And it looks like there's even a little bit of fuzz on the inside. And when she looks at the big rocks she managed to pull out, one side of it that was touching the inside has that same type of greeny funk on it as well. So it almost looks like a moss, a very thin moss. Um, but it's definitely more powerful. And her eyes start to water and she can't help but sneeze. Artemis has concerns. She has to find some way to get rid of this stuff. They could leave and she could heal everybody up and probably maybe be okay. But they can't let the doors come back in here with that stuff sitting there. Plus there could be more of it in the city. She goes back and she tells everybody else what she's learned and what she's seen. They're now going to start searching the rest of the house just to see if there's any more of it in there. Well, she continues to figure out what she's going to do with it. Now, Darsh and Ulrich were surprised when the door to the store closes. They look in the window. I'm like, what's going on? And Tobias starts yelling through the window, get away from this place. There's an illness in here, and it's you guys out there may not have it yet. Darsh and Ulrich not happy about this back away from the door. Cole has a bit of smithy experience. And Dwarf, uh, Darsh probably has more than even him at this point. Because um, Darsh does occasionally like to do some of his own smithing. But they're kind of stuck in a spot. What do we do with these rocks? And Artemis is like, do I try to cast spells on them? Can I magically purify these rocks? Nothing has led her to believe that they're magically ill, other than the fact that it very much fought against uh, her when she was trying to heal Dandy. But she has no sense of the rocks radiating any type of magic at all. Um, let's see. So, looking around, looking at the sword, she has an idea. She goes back and she says to Cole... Cole, I'm going to need you to come in here. Can you come in with me, please? And Cole comes in. He's like, I, what can I do for you? And he's like, she's like, what is that big pile over there? And he's like, that's Cole and so on and so forth. And she's like, okay, that's what I thought. 
we need to get the forge going. Can you get it lit? And he's like, yeah. I mean, technically, it's just got old coal in it. Coal does not become less flammable. He goes, I can shovel some more in there and give me a couple minutes. I can get a fire going. It's a guy who travels. and Getting a fire lit's not a problem. He's a guy who's living on his own, scouting things out. So Artemis tries to help, but again, she's already filthy and got soot all over her face. Probably the dirtiest she's been in a long time. <laughs> Leeches. Uh, but she, uh... <laughs> sorry. But she, uh, he's doing shoveling some stuff in, and he's coughing a little bit, partially because the dust is blowing up in his face. Partially not. And then he gets to work lighting a fire. And she tells him we need to get it as hot as possible. So he starts stoking the fire. There's one of them big things you pump the air into it. And he's worked a forge as a young lad. He goes, it's been a while since I've really got in here and worked one. But yeah, I can do that. And he starts working and getting it. And the fire's getting hotter and hotter. And he's like, you just got to keep building up the heat. It takes a little while for it to raise until it gets to the point where the whole room is just filling with more and more heat. Normally, there's windows that would be opened up. And in this situation, they're keeping them all closed, which is just... There is a chimney, so the smoke is getting out, and that's a concern for Artemis. She's like, well, my thought is the metal does not seem to have the problem, but it was heated up and hammered out. If we can melt the rest of this ore or get it hot enough, you know, where it's like that, then maybe we can get, you know, heat or cook this... The stank out of these rocks. Um, and Cole's like, okay, I understand. That's what you're looking to do. And he's strong enough, even though he's starting to feel a little more tired than normal, he's strong enough to, to jump in there and do that. And uh, he's like, you may have to help me. And he's like, yeah. She's like, I'll hold on to them clean things. And he's like, that's not what I need, but okay. And so she, he's trying to tell her, and she's now just pumping this thing while he's, you know, stoking it and everything like that. It takes him a while to get it going. And the place is feeling like an oven, because, you know, it technically is at this point. And, you know, Artemis has taken off her robe. She's not, she has clothes under the robe, but her official robe's taken off. Cole's shirt's off at this point, and he's just pouring in sweat. Um, and everybody else in the next room, it's getting hot in there, too. And they're like, are you sure we can come in? No, they're like, no, keep the door closed. They're just talking through the door at this point. She goes, I don't want to bring anybody else in more than I have to. They get get this going, and Artemis had some spells that I think it managed to actually help the heat get up even higher than normal, if I remember. She had some spells she cast that could help it boost up, um, and it gets real, real hot, and then she, they basically take the ore one at a time and put them into the heat, and then kind of watch it until it really just starts to almost melt from the heat. Uh, normally, you'd pull it out and hammer it, but in this situation, they're not. You know what I mean? They're trying to leave it in there until it just becomes a blue shape. And they do one at a time. Um, Artemis goes back to the door and asks them... Oh, wait a minute. No, I'm sorry. I take it back. No, Artemis ha always has the chest of holding on her. She didn't have to get into it. She opens the chest of holding, goes down inside, and brings out several um, buckets worth of water. They keep, a lar they keep several barrels of water in there because you never know, deserts and such. She brings up a bunch of small barrels and stick coal in her, get, help her get it out. And they find a big thing and they fill it with water. And as soon as they pull that heat out, as soon as they pull it out of the heat, pour it in the water, put it in the water to cool it like you know would. And of course, hot steam comes bubbling up and Artemis and Cole can barely see. And they're both starting to feel like crap at this point. Like, like real big. But it's wafting over them. Uh, maybe that's the metal. No, Menander is made from kelp wood. It's actually a wood that looks a lot like stone. It's a root that grows underground. Um, there's a, 
There's a, a bunch of it down here that uh, Morgan's able to, the guy who's fixing Menander is able to get a hold of. So in this situation, no, this is this is not Keltwood because Cole's familiar with Keltwood. They all, dwarves know what Keltwood is. But he's never seen this type of ore before. Um, so there's that. Good guess, though. Um, let's see. One at a time. They take the first one out. Put it in the water. Hisses out there and steams. It's now not even a... It's more of a blob. They pull it out and it's goopy. And Cole's got to very quickly stick it in there. The hiss comes out. And they pull it out... And now it looks more like just a lump of black. You know, it doesn't really have much of the green left to it. And Artemis, again, gives it some time to cool. She's not an idiot. Gives it some time to cool. Just put it in the water. It's not going to make it that cold. Uh, they give it some time. And they start doing the other ones. And after a bit, when it starts to, she's able to go over there and you know, kind of touch it. And it doesn't have the stank anymore. It doesn't have that aura of funk that assaults her when she gets near it. Just like the, the one sword made out of it did. I want to point out that Artemis thought of this. She's the one who said, hey, what are the clues? She's looking around. What do I see? What is this? She asked questions. And from the clues and what she saw in there, she determined this is what she wanted to do. And she thought it was, it was one of the only three ways to cause this to get fixed. And so was this option. And she did it very, very well. Um, and she was successful in destroying these blocks from what they were into what they are now. Just a lump of funky ore. That's really not that good. Or Kozling goes, you know, holding that blade, it's not that good of metal. It wouldn't have made that good of a blade. Once all five of the rocks are no longer giving off the funky mojo, um, Artemis is like, okay, at this point, she's starting. She's already exhausted just from the physical stuff. She doesn't normally do this kind of work. But she knows she's feeling more tired than she should. She's like, I have to start healing people before I'm too weak to do so. So... She goes back out into the main room. She starts casting some big heals, which will affect several people at a time. Uh, and casting those spells drain her a little bit more. And each time it feels like it's fighting back a little bit. But she is successfully able to cast it on everybody inside, though she's very weak. She doesn't have the strength to cast it anymore after she's healed everyone in that room. She's done with that spell for the day. She doesn't have any more. Which means, if for some reason Darsh and Ulrich have it, she no longer has the ability to cast it on them. It's determined that Darsh and Ulrich are going to move a ways away to another building. And they're going to come out and go to a whole separate building and not be anywhere near each other and try to rest, spend some time, so that Artemis can hopefully get her, her spells back. Hopefully her spells worked and she is alive to do that. Darsh and Ulrich have not had any symptoms. No sneezing, no coughing, no itchy throat, none of that stuff. So they feel they're okay, but they don't want to take chances. So Darsh and Ulrich spend one evening in a shop across the street down the way, and they go down the street into another one. And they spend the evening there resting and just kind of staying quiet and such, because there's not a lot, you know, they don't want to call attention to themselves when they're split up like this. And Artemis is out of spells. But the next morning comes, and the next morning everybody feels fine. There's no more itchy coffee, sneezing, whatever the commercials are for sicknesses. Everybody feels okay. So they go check on Darsh and Ulrich, who again have no symptoms. They were never went in that room in the back, so they never got close enough to the ore to be a problem. And they were never touched by anyone who touched the ore. And so they're okay. 
Artemis does some like, detect spells just to be safe, but they seem fine. So now they know what they're looking for. They start searching the other smithies and forges in this area. And Artemis goes into the homes and the stores alone, which nobody likes, but nobody else can sense when they're near the stuff. Where Artemis, it feels like she's being hit with a wall. And so she starts going in and just walking around. Well, she doesn't have to touch stuff, move around. She starts checking, and they, she finds no other issues anywhere else. In that area, anyways. So, putting together what they believe happened is somehow this guy's load of ore was brought in with some rocks that were kind of funky. He got it. Daughter got it. Daughter went looking for help. Cleric got it. Cleric went back out. Gave it to everybody else. If this was the true and only source, that's what they are running with. At least that's what they came up with. At this point, they decide, okay, we've done all our searching. We've found nothing else here. Let's continue on to where we were going next. Let's continue on to the temple. That's our next place to go. They leave the city proper and make their way to and into the temple. As they arrive, the doors are open, wide, nothing tried to bar them, um, but the road leading to the temple, when they get close to it, uh, is littered with the remains of people who were looking for help. They're having to walk around people who just had no strength to go anywhere else. As they enter the, umple, the, the temple through the opened doors, they see again but were probably bodies laid out, people laid out, in makeshift beds and cots, just laying on blankets, doors. Again, the final resting place of probably hundreds. The temple itself is smaller than the main temple that they went in, in the main chamber, but not by a heck of a lot. Again, Ventoy is one of the oldest clans. I've mentioned before the Thanadin span, right? The big bridge and Thanadin's fist are the names of things. Thanadin was the founder of... Thorman. And when this all happened to the Ventoy, their Thane was a direct descendant of Thanedin. So they were probably the oldest clan in here. Although dwarves are fair. They weren't always, you know, for hundreds of years, if not thousands, they were probably High Thane, and then it went to another clan, and as the other clans kind of broke off and moved in and such. So they ent enter into the temple. And as they're looking around a bit, just off the main room, there's a, looks like a, a room with a big table in it. So they step in, they decide to go in and search that room. And they step inside. The conference room is warm and well lit by several braziers. You can see several older dwarves and clerics sitting at the central table. Looking back to the main hall now, you can see it is thick with dwarves of all ages. Most lay on the ground, and you can tell they are all infected. Clerics move through the crowd, offering what comfort they can. It is easy to see most of them are infected as well. Has there been any word from the Shinar? Asks one, particularly old dwarf cleric, sitting at the conference table. Aye, brother, responds the cleric next to him. Their magic hasn't found any spells causing the plague, but none are willing to enter the cavern for fear of spreading it to their own. The first cleric nods his head sadly. Then it is as we feared. 
It is beyond our power to stop it. We have no other choice. He calls out, and another young dwarf steps forward. He looks at the young dwarf and says, Tell the thane we've done all that we can. Tell him we will continue to try, but that he must move forward with this plan. The young dwarf nods and hurries off as the old cleric rises. Come, my brothers. If we must succumb to this foul curse, let us die with our people. Together the clerics walk through the chamber door into the main hall. As the last one steps through and the vision fades, you hear the old cleric say, Thorum, why have you forsaken us? The image is gone and they're back in the empty room again. It's rough for Cole specifically to see his ancestors going through this. I mean, Artemis and Dandy Mercy, they, I mean, everybody darsh, I mean, but everybody has a problem with it, but it particularly hits Artemis and Cole, because Cole sees this as this is what brought down his clan, why they lost almost everything they had. How many of his family, kin, and ancestors died here because of this? Artemis feels the same way. So many souls and lives lost to the things she hates the most, sickness and illness and plague. And in the back of her head, if only, not like egotistical, but only if I was here then, or a cleric of, my, of, of Tavian was here, if only we had represented as part of this, maybe we would have been able to step up and do something. Maybe we would have been able to find this source like we did, although it was a needle in a haystack. Had it not been for the spirits, they may have never found that house. Nick Blaze, welcome back, sir. It's been a while. So, they're hit a lot, really hard with it. But after they search the temple, they don't really find anything else here. Nothing that would be stinky rocks. Artemis senses nothing funky in that regard. So they decide at this point, instead of crossing all the way over to the city gates, they're going to go ahead and move right on to the main keep, the, the Thane's keep. And they might make their way there. Um... So, it is by far the largest structure in the cavern. It's built into the back. Um, it looks just like a castle carved out of the wall. Uh, I mentioned the Thane is already a direct descendant of Thanedon, the original dwarf that found this thousands of years ago. It's also where the treasure of the Ventoy is kept, uh, deep underground in their vault. Cole reminds everyone that if they're successful here, they all get a chunk of treasure, although their friends are like, we appreciate that, and, you know, We'll take it. But we're just happy to help. But we'll take it. <laughs> they start making their way in, and as they do again, they see the same signs they did everywhere else. Markings of the bodies and of the dead. Again, nothing that shows combat, nothing that shows fighting of any kind, just people who eventually got sick and fell over and died. As they're traveling through the main hall or they have to travel through the main hall and behind the main hall there's doors leading off of it of course and go back down in but they go up the stairs and the first room is literally the main hall where the 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 thane would sit on his throne the first thing you see is him he addresses you himself there's kitchens and personal quarters and forges and all that stuff in the back and up and down but the first thing you walk into is the main hall The Grand Hall was once a fabulous place that is now dark and cold. As you step up into the hall, the braziers once more burst into flame. 
Again, you are surprised to find yourself surrounded by dwarves. These are all dressed well and are obviously of rank and military, some of such. Sitting in the once empty throne on the far side of the room is a dwarf of regal authority. He is obviously the thane, and he is visibly distraught. Around you, the dwarves seem to be having some kind of debate. Their voices are more of a murmur in the background. You find your, So they're listening, they're not really hearing the words, but they get that feel like people are arguing and talking and debating back and forth, yelling across the room, and they can see that. But they're not getting specific words, that's just the feeling that they're getting from, from what they hear in the tones of voices. You find yourself drawn to the thane, and walking through the spirits, you make your way closer to the throne. As you do, draw next to the thane. Uh, oh, missed it. <laughs> I missed a spot. Oh, here we go. As you do, you see another young dwarf enter the room. Everyone seems to go silent, staring at the young man. He is clearly a cleric by his robes, and he looks vaguely familiar. The young cleric approaches and bows before his thane and says, My lord, I bring word from the temple. Speak, says the thane in a deep, haunting voice. My lord, says the cleric, it is with regret that I must report to you that the temple has failed. We cannot stop the sickness. Uh, 9,000 daily views now. <laughs> I appreciate that name. It's getting there. Yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> Uh, temple has failed. We cannot stop the sickness. The room bursts into a roar of yells, arguments, and outbursts. The thane sits there for a moment and then says something to the cleric who bows and again and, again and leaves the chamber. After a moment, the thane rises and holds up his hands. And a minute later, the crowd goes quiet. My people, says the thane, our last hope has failed. Our clerics are unable to stop the spread of this foul disease that is destroying our kin and families. Again, murmurs can be heard through the crowd. And the thing continues. Therefore, we must act to ensure this plague does not reach our kin beyond our border. We must guarantee that the mighty kingdom of Corman shall survive. You see heads nodding in agreement, but here and there you see dwarves shaking their heads. Again, the thane goes on. I have no choice but to order the guards to close the city gates. Again, the crowd erupts into yells and arguments. You can hear shouts of, you're dooming us all. You're killing us. The thane allows them several moments. Before again, he rises his hand. And the crowd goes quiet. This must be done. I have not given up hope we will find a cure, but in the meantime, we must preserve the kingdom. If we must sacrifice ourselves to save our kin, then that is the price we will have to pay. The thane's voice softens as a tear comes to his eye. I had to hold me daughter's hand as the life faded from her eyes this morning. No man should outlive his children. If I can save another father from such a fate, by God I will. The crowd is silent, sharing in the grief of their king. 
You can tell by the looks on their faces that many of them have felt the same loss. Send out the word, says the thing, sitting back down into his throne. Oh, hold on. I got a kid who's trying to kid who's trying to walk on a keyboard. No, sweetie. Stay there. <laughs> Send out the word, says the thane, sitting back on his throne. Close the gates. As the dwarves around you fade away, you can hear the great thane's voice whisper, and may the gods forgive us for what we do. The image fades and the room goes dark again. They have some time to talk. Cole's visibly got tears. It's just, it's too much. Everybody, even even Darsh is like, I got some of that sitting my, you know, kind of thing. Um, it's a sad thing for them to go through. Um, there we go. So they have a chance to talk a little bit, and they decide that when the when the image goes away, there's no body on the throne. So the Thane's passed away somewhere else, and they feel like they're not done here, like they should find him, you know, make sure, you know, they can report whatever was his final act and such. And they begin to walk past the throne towards the personal quarters. <laughs> Pet your cat, great stories. <laughs> Thank you, Nick, I appreciate that. He says, even I'm sad. <laughs> hey, Patchy. Hey, Patchy. Somebody gave me $2 so I give you some cuddles. Yeah, you get cuddles anyways, don't you? <laughs> Let's see. They begin to walk towards the doors that lead to the person area when they start to hear a sound come from behind them near the throne. It's a low... I always a delay on those. Again, thank you very much, Nick. I appreciate it. I love kitties, too. I got three of them. On Valentine's Day, they get extra lows. <laughs> they hear it low at first, almost like a wind. And then it starts to sound more like a door slowly opening until it continues to build more like a low moaning or a sound. Someone in pain. It gets louder, but still deep and a mournful and they feel an overwhelming wave of sadness and despair wash over them. And walking out of the darkness, again they see the Thane. Again, he looks much like he did in life, only now his spirit is a blue flame-like kind of thing, like it's glistening and burning, and in his eyes and his face he sees only anger. And they're like, I think he sees us. That's <laughs> what Dandy said. <laughs> I think he sees us. And they were correct. In his hand appears a large, large two-handed war hammer. And the ghost attacks. They end up fighting this spirit. They, uh... Not happy to... Um, but they're forced into combat with the spirit of the Thane. And it takes a bit. It does, it, it does accept physical damage. For it to become physical enough to hurt them, it has to do the same thing. Why would he attack them? Good question. Good question. We're not there yet, but that's a good question.
but the howling is him as he comes moving forward. Even though it kind of looks like he's running, his feet are almost like going through the ground. He's, he's not just like zooming forward quicker than a, a dwarf probably should. And they enter into combat. The characters are caught off guard by this, so their first round is just literally defensive, trying to block and defend themselves. Um, once again, um, shockingly, one of the the one who ended up doing a, a lot more effective damage than they expected was Ulrich, who again, with that Frostbrand sword, it seems to have a serious bite on it towards the spirits and before the demons and such. Turtle, you got two out of three of them, my friend. Two out of three of those are correct. There's a third reason. We'll get to that one in a minute. But yes, he doesn't want them to leave and possibly spread it. And he's also mad with grief over the fate of his clan. He blames himself. Because you imagine, he's a king who every one of his people died. That's a heavy weight to bear. As a king, you're solely responsible for the protection of your people. And in his eyes, it was the ultimate failure. Instead of protecting his people, he lost them all. The battle itself wasn't very long. Um, Cole took the biggest hit. Because um, Cole tried to step out and speak to him. He tried to be like, no, I'm one of your kin. And he had a little moment. Um, and Thane didn't care. Uh, Thane gooshed him up pretty big. Because um, that hammer... It, it's what it, the hammer. The way I did it is when it hit people, it wasn't that it physically struck them. The hammer when it and it took him a couple rounds to realize this. Uh, they actually realized it when it hit Darsh, but when it was hitting Darsh, it was going into him a little bit, and then hitting Darsh, and it wasn't leaving a physical move. For all intents and purposes, he was literally being hit in his own soul. It was a spirit going through him, hitting him at the same plane that this spirit existed on, was going after their life force. And the hammer, that's why a lot of their shields and such didn't mean anything. It just went through that. So it took them a little bit, um, and it ended up being, um, once again, Artemis uh, that stepped up after Ulrich had done some, drawn the attention of it with the Frostbrand. The Frostbrand being one of the only weapons that was successfully able to defend the hammer. And not by much. This ghost still has the physical strength of the Thane, if not a little bit better. And that's a big hammer being blocked by a sword. You can imagine how sore your arm would get trying to clang that out of the way. Suddenly, Ulrich is on the defense. But he was drawing the attention. Um, and Artemis ends up casting Remove Curse. Uh, Artemis is pretty powerful. Um, it was a 50-50 shot it was going to work for her. And she successfully rolled it. I said, because that, you know, I had several different ways that they could defeat him. Um, and one of them was remove curse, but she had no better than a 50-50 shot. This is a self-imposed curse. This is a curse that he's given himself through his own despair of loss and uh, regret. Uh, so there's that. Uh, so there's that. And he gets, and the remove curse works. There's a little bit of... Uh, fighting back from it, if you will. Where it's, you know, she's casting a spell and his spirit's still trying to get to her to thwack her in the head and that kind of thing. And it's ignoring what everybody else is doing to it. 
but her spell is strong enough to really push over this, and eventually the Thane's spirit screams out and washes away and kind of almost like dissipates in an explosion. Kinder can her elven directly or possibly frozen because the illness is the first place by giving the Smith the rocks and he hated all that race for it. Not that. But cool. With a wailing moan, the ghost of Thane Boromin dissipates. And the... Because there's four braziers that were all like spooky thing. I forgot to say that, but they weren't magical. Uh, they die out and the hall is left in silence. Everyone just standing there, shocked. With that, they were successful. Suddenly, Cole's eyes go wide and he points behind you. They turn around quickly, weapons drawn. Turning, you see several more ethereal figures at the entrance to the hall watching you. They slowly take shape until you're standing before the old cleric from the temple, the dwarf maiden from the street, and the old dwarf and the little boy from the plaza. They stand there with sad smiles on their faces. Finally, after a moment, one by one, they turn and walk away, fading into nothingness as they go. The last to leave is the man and the boy. As the old man takes the young child's hand and starts leading the boy away, the child stops for just a moment and turns and waves goodbye to you. The old dwarf smiles as the two of them fade away, and you know in their hearts, their spirits, are finally at rest. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, the pain and sorrow of so many people dying over a small period of time, and just the pure regret, self-hatred of the Thane, kind of locked these spirits where many of them were not able to pass over. Um, the Thane was still trying to protect his people and not let them go. Because if they left, in his mind, they may bring down doom to the other dwarves. The Thane thought he was protecting the other clans by not letting his people leave the cavern. Because that was his job. To, when he failed his people, his clan, he could still save Coromin. Is the is the thought behind that? They, I tell them this too. Obviously, it's they didn't just guess that. I mean, nobody told them, but that's what it means. And I explain that sometimes. So with that, there's no more spirits popping up. There's no that at this point. The entire spirits of the Ventoy Nation from 450 years ago are able to pass on into the next realm. Um, and there are no more spirits or ghosts walking these streets. I'm glad we still have an hour left because I've got so much other cool stuff to do. Uh, or I would have thought maybe he wanted to die in order for his people to be able to leave and he was unintentionally locking them there. No, he was, it, was, it was more of a protection thing. He, he, his last real big order was to close the gates and his last thing, like he said, was if I won't let another father go through this if I can help it. In his mind is, I will not let someone else have to go through watching their child die. And that became his biggest motivation, is to save everyone else as he wasn't able to save his own people. That's at least how I wrote it, anyways. So, once this is all over, and they have a moment to catch their breath and see what's going on, uh, there are several doors leading from this chamber, uh, from the back and sides. But 
Cole knows of these, um, they still are going to, you know, because I'm telling you now there's no more ghosts and spirits, but they don't know that yet. They're going to keep looking around a bit and see if there's anything else. There weren't any more, but they didn't know that. So they begin searching through the place, and they eventually come across, um, obviously, what would be the doors to the Thane's personal quarters. And Cole's a little nervous about going in there. He feels like it's a little, you know... Like, I shouldn't be walking on something like holy ground. But they're like, you know, we, we got to look. We got to check everywhere. For all we know, the thing spirits in there, we got to fight them again. So they go in and they look around. And they find the thing's bed. It looks very snazzy, though it's old and dusty and the sheets are rat ratty at this point. Um, but they don't find anything there. But in the room next to it, they find what is obviously was the bedroom of a dwarven child. Um, whose small tiny what's left of skeletal remains is still in the bed and sitting on just a simple chair next to it is the high thane's armor he just died sitting next to the body of his daughter and he just passed away in that spot cole really wants to make sure you know he's like we're gonna have to talk to the high thane we gotta make sure the there's so many bodies out here we gotta make sure they get Proper burials, just like the rest of Corman. I mean, all the bodies and bones they've seen, you're not going to be able to identify who many of them are. Um, but they're going to have to be given some type of last rites. But something like this, the Thane and what would have been the princess at that point, or Thane-S, whatever princess is for Thanes, um, definitely needs to be acknowledged and, and buried. And Cole goes over and starts searching the body. And they're like, that's a kind of a little, little rude, is it? And he, and he shakes his head and he keeps looking. And then finally, from underneath the armor, he pulls out a metal hoop with two keys hanging from it. And the keys look very much alike, although one appears almost like a gold color, but not gold, like it's tinged that way. And one of them looks like a very, very old steel. Um, like an old steel, but, you know, steel, it's not rusting, but it's still got that bit of an old tinge to it. They look very much alike, but not identical. And when they ask what those are, he goes, the Thane is the only person who has a key to open the gates once they've been closed. And he's also the only one who has a key to the vault. Could Cole claim the crown? No. Um, because again, remember, he was sent on a mission by the current Thane. Right? It's the current Thane that told them where the secret passageway was. And based on Cole's stories of what the heroes did, said, hey... Can you go down there and take them out? Will he be rewarded and given serious rank and things of that nature? Very much so. I mean, technically, he's the one that helped. Again, they're going to view it as he's the one that helped return the clan. Um, but the lineage or the Thane, there's already a Thane. The Thane would come in and, and, and take over. And I'm, I didn't go into specifics, but there's the Thane of the clan is a good Thane. He's a good guy. Uh, who, much like Cole, has always dreamed of being able to take the lands back, but there was never an opportunity until Artemis and Mercy and friends came down there and whooped all the demons so they could get back down there. Um, but no, if Cole tried, I mean, again, there's, there's honor and such. He's not that kind of a douche. But no, he's not going to. We haven't seen the last of Cole. Uh, for the record, uh, just it's not a big deal, but I'm saying Cole is K-O-A-L. Just in case you're wondering. Because... He was named after a friend of mine who played World of Warcraft. That was his character, was Cole. Um, and I love, I, I really, I like the character. Cole was, as a person, um, one of the harshest people I've ever met. 
I'm only going to take a tiny aside from here, but I want to where you guys where I catch this. I was at a we were at a dungeon raid with a guild one time. I don't like that kind of stuff. And but they talked me into going because they needed a person. And they were my friends, and I'm like, okay. And Cole was there. It's the first time I'd seen Cole. And uh, this other person came in and did something stupid, and I don't remember what they did. All I know is that Cole verbally berated this dude for three minutes uh, in a way that would make a grown man cry. And I was trying not to laugh because it's what I would have done. Because uh, the guy was just being a turd. It was a young teenage dude just not being cool. And I was like, I said, four hours aside, we've wasted two on your ass. And just, and it was, I was trying not to laugh. And our, our guild leader, a guy named Rom, uh, he, he uh, same situation. He was an older guy. Uh, and he was trying not to laugh. But finally, he's like, okay, I think we've got it now. And Cole's like, okay. And then I'm like, did I do anything wrong? Cole's like, no, you're fine. I like you. <laughs> that was it. Cole's, Cole. And Cole is a huge ex-military dude, like six foot four, pure muscle workout dude. And he's a nurse. And he's like, I have to move all the butt people. Somebody needs lifted in and out of bed. They just call me. But Cole, I was like, I had the best bedside manner. But man, in World of Warcraft, that dude could tear out. I loved hanging out with him. But... Aside from that, that's why I named this character after. Not that he acted the same way, but I wanted to put a character in for Cole because I liked him. Um, so yes, uh, there was that. So at this point, there's some things that they decide to do. They have to leave. They want to see if they can get the gate open, right? That's an option. Um, but at the same time, they want to go and verify that the treasure is here. This is part of their quest. This is part of what the Thane wants them to because to rebuild the clan and the clan's home, it's going to cost money. You know? This stuff's in worse disrepair than the other areas because it was an extra 250 years where nobody messed with it. Um, so it's going to take a lot and they're one of the smallest peopled clans at this point because most of their clan died in here. There's, was, they're the smallest surviving clan at this point. So money they're going to need. So Cole is to go down and check the vault and to give these characters their rewards as well. To verify that it's there, because they're again hiking. They're just not going to all march down there and move right in. You know, it could be months, even years before it's cleared up where they're allowed to come back and even live down here. Um, but they want to know that the money's there. So it takes them a while to even find the vault, several hours, because it's passageways and such, and doors that are hidden, and they had to solve a puzzle and stuff, because uh, this, is the, this is the wealth, right? Only the king and certain people the king chose had access to the main vault treasury kind of thing. Um, so that was you know, kind of part of it. So they took a little while to find it, and then when they do find the Thane, um, to get to the keyhole... There was a puzzle as well. I don't have the puzzle written down, sadly. I'm, I usually do a better job of keeping that. But I, I don't have the puzzle written down, and I just don't remember exactly what it was. But it was some type of uh, puzzle that they had to do to get to the even key. Uh, when do you expect you behind the dice? I'm hoping to have behind the dice out tomorrow. Uh, if not tomorrow, Thursday at the latest. Again, so much stuff going on that it keeps getting pushed back, and I apologize for that. As for d and I'm no idea. I'm... Honestly, so much stuff going on, I, I haven't really messed with it at all. Um, here we go. So, finally, after hours of searching, they managed to find the door. It's not magically sealed, technically. Oh, I'm sorry. Tuesday, then, Turtle. Sorry, I forgot my day. Tuesday. Thank you, Turtle. You're right, it was Tuesday. 
I'm blah, blah, blah. Um, now I want to refilm it because I got this better camera. I may refilm it because I got this better camera. Um, but they finally found it and they managed to pop it open. Um, the key, it's the lock is magic, magically locked. Dandy couldn't have picked it, but the key itself works. It, it's what dispels magic and let it open. Um, and you can imagine that the Thane would have had this sealed. If he knew all this was going on, he wouldn't want people just wandering in here later. Sealing, so, you know, he had it locked up. But they finally managed to find the thing, and they open it up, and they go inside. Um, and inside the vault is a massive treasure unlike anything you've ever seen. Mounds of coins piled up to the ceiling, big ceiling. Chests overflowing in precious gems. Statues and artifacts of every precious metal and weapons. Weapons and armor of the finest dwarven craftsmanship. You are amazed by what you see. You could build a hundred serenities with what lays before you. Cole's eyes are filled with tears. You can see the hope in them. You can see his dreams of rebuilding his clan and country, and you feel blessed that you were able to help. Cole is true to the world, or true to the world. He says, per the thane, you go through, take whatever you want that you can carry. If you can pick it up, it's yours. Um, he knows about the chest of holding, but I, they're good people. They're not going to do that. Uh, you, whatever you can carry, you can get. And so they got to start looking around. Um, and, you know, they're grabbing you know, coins they have, but they may grab a few. Basically, the equivalent is if they could find a small chest they could pick up, they could fill it with whatever they wanted. And that was the concept I gave them. Imagine if there's a small chest. You find one in all these things. You dump it out. And you just fill it with whatever you want. You put that in your chest of holding, which is much bigger. That's your chest of stuff. Um, and while they probably grab some coins of value, platinum specifically, they all kind of had the same idea. Let's grab things like jewels and jewelry and gems. Things that, you know, coins we can find. Uh, but let's find some of the things, like if I find a gem worth 5,000 gold pieces, why would I carry 5,000 gold pieces? I'll take an expensive gem. So, you know, there's so much wealth here, they're not putting a dent in it. So, you know, they, I didn't feel they were cheating them. So they all had that same idea. They were looking for things of value to fill it with. And they found a couple very decorative daggers. They asked... Did we find anything decorative? Like, yeah, you find a necklace like this, a tiara like this. And some of those things they decided to take to give as gifts to their followers or people who've allied or helped them out. Um, Dandy was looking for things that she could surprise Michael with when he woke up, because, of course, all this is to save Michael. But they all looking around and seeing what they can find. And like I said, there's big statues of gold. They're not walking out of that. They didn't find any magical weapons. Um, but they did find the highest quality of dwarven weapons. And as I've mentioned before, when it comes to Dungeons & Dragons, um, if you roll a one critical fumble, you roll the critical fumble dice. And one of those is break weapon. If it's a non-magical weapon, it breaks. Too bad, so sad. If it's a magical weapon, it gets a notch. And every weapon has three notches. Once it's had its third notch, it breaks as well. Um, it is possible sometimes to have a notch repaired by a craftsman or wizard, depending on what it is that you're working with. Um, these weapons are of such fine quality that while they're not magical weapons, the one thing they did have are three notches. So they're just some of the best weapons ever made in the Dwarven Kingdom. So much so they decide not to sell them, they're going to keep them. Maybe pass down from generations. So there was some weapons that they're like, oh, I found a, 
a sword or a hammer or an axe that's very high quality, I'm going to take this and give it to a follower so they have something that's really good and fancy, but maybe it's not magical, but it still has that kind of, it's going to last them a while kind of thing. So there was some stuff like that. Uh, let's see. So they got to go through there. The three notches thing. And they all start looking around. And then I read something. They thought we were done. But then I read something. As you all look through the treasure deciding what you will keep, you slowly end up drifting apart. Coming around a mound of gold coins, Artemis finds herself near the edge of the room, close to the wall. A little ways ahead, she sees a wooden door. The door is odd and out of place here. It's human-sized and a very basic craftsmanship. Still, Artemis was intrigued and moves closer to investigate it. The door itself seems like it's important, almost as if it's why she's here. She knows that, that behind that door is something of the utmost importance, and she knows she has to know what it is. Mercy is swinging around an amazingly crafted longsword when she sees Artemis in the distance. Mercy calls out to her, wanting to show her a chest of beautiful jewelry she had found. Artemis doesn't turn her head or acknowledge Mercy in any way. Mercy calls out again as Artemis's staff falls from her hand. Yet Artemis continues. Mercy sees the door and can tell that something is wrong. Mercy immediately drops the sword and runs as fast as she can to Artemis. Artemis can hear voices calling her name, but she can't seem to concentrate on them. But finally, she can feel the cool metal of the doorknob in her hand. It turns smoothly, and the door swings open effortlessly. Only blackness lies behind it, but without hesitation, Artemis steps inside, and the door closes behind her. Mercy reaches the door just seconds after it closes. Grabbing the handle, she yanks the door open, only to reveal solid stone. Mercy starts smacking on it. Everybody else catches up. They hear the yelling. Some of them are already coming up there. Dandy and Cole immediately start looking for secret doors. So they're trapped something in here. Cole... Being the best of that, Dandy being good as well. They start searching. They start looking around. Is there somehow another way to get around it? The room is, dress is strangely shaped. They're calling out to Artemis, but they hear nothing. Again, they're talking to solid rock. They begin searching the room. She, she, failed, she didn't fail a role per se, but the equivalent, right? Um, they start searching everywhere. Maybe there's another door, and they start running around and looking. Staying close together. In case something happens and one of them gets inspelled like they feel Artemis was. Uh, Mercy has grabbed her staff because it's not a cheap staff. It's a magical staff. Grabs her staff and is carrying it. Because they don't want to leave that just sitting there, right? Oh, very much out of character. Just abandoning her people and ignoring them? Yes. They're searching around the room looking for anything they can find that might lead them to where Artemis is. And a distance away, they see what looks like a big crack in the wall. 
The crack looks natural, almost like the stone is shifted at one point, and some stone lays on the coins and stuff that are near it. Uh, one big rock has fallen and even cracked and busted in a, uh, a chest of some kind. You can see the gems and stuff that were in it had spooled out from the rock crushing the chest. Uh, but it looks like a natural crack, but it's the only thing they've seen. So they start racing towards it. They almost reach it before something comes out of the darkness. A large, long creature that almost looks just like the stone itself. So this massive stone snake, which exists, by the way, uh, in Merge World, snake, a snake that is basically made of living stone, attacks them. It's anaconda size. It's about 32 feet long. It's probably longer than an anaconda, but it's really big. Nope, not a basilisk. Good call, though. Considered it. Um, but the problem with the basilisk, just from a D&D standpoint, to give everybody an idea here, why I didn't use a basilisk? What was it eating? It's a question I have to ask myself anytime that I write a dungeon. If there's a living creature down here, what has it been eating for 450 years? That's why everything we've come across here has been ghosts or elementals, things that wouldn't need food or sustenance or something else living down here to survive. The stone snake itself surviving deep in the uh, in the ground itself. It found its way in here, but stone snakes uh, can actually feed off of different types of rocks. Uh, so a lot of times when I'm rolling a dungeon, that's the first thing I think of is, is there living stuff? And if so, how did it live? And rats are something to think about, but at this point, they're half a mile down. Rats, what are the rats eating? You know what I mean? If you're in an empty cavern, I'm sure that when... The dwarves were living here. They probably had some vermin and such chilling in here. But as everything alive died, the rats and animals are going to leave as well, or they're going to die if they didn't get plagued as well. So that's why I looked at that. Basilisk was on my mind, but then I, that was, I was like, oh, maybe some of the statues here are dwarves. Um, but then I'm like, well, why would there be dwarves locked in here if there's a plague? And it just it didn't fit well for me. But I had that same idea. Good call. So they end up fighting against... A stone snake, which, again, uh, not an overly ungodly powerful creature, but hard to hit. Like, you, know, you can hit it. It's big. It's fast. But it's basically stone. It takes a lot to do damage to them. Um, any bladed weapon only did one quarter damage, and blunt weapons did half damage. So Mercy was doing better than everyone else, uh, but... Again, that became one of the, the biggest issues is that it, it don't, its skin is so thick and stone-like that it just doesn't feel it. You're chipping rock at that point. Um, so, they end up fighting a snake. Um, this whole time, without a healer, because they don't know where Artemis is. And they're very freaking out. They're fighting the snake. They fight it. It was actually it was a very long fight because it just took a long time to do damage. Fortunately, they didn't do a whole lot of damage. What little damage they did get taken, they always had some healing potions for when Artemis isn't around. They saved those for special occasions. Um, Cole uh, managed to, and Darsh were grabbing hammers and stuff from out, and they started grabbing blunt weapons, which helped. Again, none of them were magical, but they were blunt, and so they were able to do more damage to the rock than they could with a blade. So everybody was grabbing stuff like that. Uh, Ulrich's blade, again, one of the only ones that did any decent cutting. And even then, it was still diluted, if you will, in the damage. 
But after a while, they do finally just do enough damage to the snake that it literally crumbles. It's not a magical construct, but uh, with enough physical damage to its outer shell, it just basically dies. Crum crumbles into rock. All right. And when this is all done, they look through the crack, but it's just enough room for the snake to climb through. It doesn't look like a doorway or a passage. And they have no reason to believe Artemis is that way. So all they can think is, where the hell did Artemis go? Now, we've got some time, so we get to go home. But that was their cliffhanger. Because <laughs> uh, I did that to them. So, the next day for them. Artemis. Okay, well, I have a question. If I were to play an artificer, would you allow me to make dynamite at a certain point? No, and I'm not sure I'm even going to allow artificers, because I think that's a stupid idea. And I'd say to me personally, it's, I want to live in a fantasy world, but I still want to have all the cool stuff of machines. I, to me, it goes against magic and such, and I don't like the concept at all. It, it's not fantasy to me. It's like, hey, I want to play Dungeons & Dragons, but I want to be steampunk. I, I, Artificer is the one class I don't think I'm going to have on Merge World because I just don't like it. Yeah. So, there's that. Um, where was I? Okay. Artemis finds herself standing in a stone room. The room is not overly large, but it's perfectly square. And there are three doors. One on the left wall, one on the right wall, and the door behind her that she came through. Ahead of her is a table. An old wooden table. Nothing fancy, but it definitely looks old. And sitting on that table are three chests of different sizes. The chest on the left is open. And from where she's standing, it appears that it's empty. There's a chair next to the table. And sitting on that chair is an old man. His long white hair, long beard, not scraggly, relatively wealthy, is sitting there. His robes are old and faded, and it's hard to tell what color they were. They're almost like a grayish, light, light grayish at this point. So were they gray robes originally or another color? Hard to tell. And he's just sitting there with a slight smile on his face. Whatever it was that had drawn Artemis into this room is gone. She's just standing there normally now. And she's confused. She remembers coming in here, but she doesn't remember why. Only that she knew it was important. Long white hair, yes. The man stands up and greets her and says, Hello, Artemis. I've been waiting for you for a very, very long time. Artemis is confused. She doesn't know this person. But he clearly knows who she is. And yet she asks, Where am I? And of course, being a turd, I said, He's, You're here in this room. Nothing else matters at this moment except for this room. She doesn't know what it is, Dirk. He says, on this table there are three chests. Again, I already described that. And one of them is open. She goes, he goes, 
you must choose a chest and then take what's ever inside and leave through the door you came in. Artemis is confused. She asks his name and he says, again, you must choose a chest. Take what's inside and leave through the door you came in. She goes, what about the other chest or the other doors? And he shakes his head and said, those are not for you. Those are for someone else. You must choose a chest. Take what is inside and leave through the door you came in. Artemis is confused. He's not a little frustrated. He's not saying anything else than kind of repeating that same thing. And she looks at him and she goes, well, which chest? He goes, that's your choice. The one on the left is clearly open and empty. So does she take the center chest? Does she take the one on the right? Now the chests are relatively large chests. They're big chests. The table's a little low. So she feels like she's over top of them. But she can open up these chests. The one left, she's looking in there. She does. because He's not trying to stop her. She looked in there. Reached her hand in a little bit. It's an empty box. Seems to be velvet lined inside. Smooth. But nothing inside that she can see. So Artemis had to choose a chest. Artemis chose the chest on the right. The hinge, no squeak, and the lid lifts effortless, effortlessly. <laughs> Stumble over that word. Effortless. Effortlessly. Sorry. Whew, that was a tough word to get out there. <laughs> and inside of the chest was a sword. She lifts the sword out. It's in a sheath. Inside is the sword. That's in a sheath. The sword looks of okay, good quality, but nothing overly fancy. It doesn't give off in her mind something that would appear overly magical or artifact or anything of that nature. But it looks like an okay sword. The sheath looks old and worn. Clearly it looks like it's been used at some point. She draws the sword from the sheath. Well, she tries. The sword won't come out. It's like it's stuck in there. She pulls on it kind of hard. Looking at it, there's some type of symbols on the hilt. She notices the man is now standing beside her. Catches her off guard. Didn't hear her moving. She has elven ears. Caught her by surprise. He said, the sword cannot be drawn by you. You are not its user. He goes, you are the seeker, the one destined to find the sword. You must take it and give it to the protector, who will protect the sword until it is needed by the bearer, he who needs the sword. It is to him the sword was created. Only the bearer may draw the sword from the sheath. She re he reaches down and the words, and he rubs his finger kind of across the symbols. And even though Artemis doesn't know the language, she can for a moment read the word, and it just says, Destiny. And her heart just falls. The man looks at her and smiles, though 
it seems almost like his smile's a little sad at this point. He says, remember, you must get this to the protector, and he must keep it safe until it is needed. It's time for you to return to your friends. And points back towards the door that she came through. Artemis opens her mouth as if to say more, but has this feeling he's not going to answer any questions. And she looks at that left chest and can't help but wonder who took something out of that chest? Who came through one of these other doors and took something before she got here? And what's in that last chest? And who's that supposed to be for? The frustration building in her mind, she looks at the man and nods and turns around and goes back to the door. Opening it up, she sees again only blackness and steps back through. The word on the sword being the only thing she can think about. And that is the word destiny. Interesting fact for those of you who've been hanging out for a while with me. Do you know any idea why that would make her upset? I'd be intrigued. Oh no, we still got 25 minutes. Hmm. Oh no, I'm going to set up next episode for you guys real good. But I'm interested to see if you can, if anybody knows why that's a problem. Because remember, this is, was the first thing that they did that day. So it wasn't meant to be a cliffhanger. Finding out where she was, was it someone's name? That's a good guess, but no. Her child. But why? Anybody remember? I'll give you just a second because I know there's a delay. And if not, I will tell you. Now, I'll tell you that there's a person out there, if they're still listening, named Jim, who takes notes of <laughs> this stuff. And I'm wondering if he'll know it. Kitty, yes, she's my kitty. She's one of my kitties. Mr. Midnight's over there, and Buffy is sleeping on the back of the couch over there. Jim nails it. For the last of your line shall be a great king, for he shall be the child of destiny, and only the blood of his kin can destroy him. That was Draven's mother's prophecy. Or he shall be the child of destiny. Stepping through the door actually helped too. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Stepping through the doorway, Artemis finds herself walking into the treasure room the same way they came into it the first time from the main door where the lock was. She looks at me, she turns around behind us. The open doorway leading back upstairs. She can hear people calling her name and she calls out as well. Of course, her friends come running over, immediately making sure she's okay, giving her a staff back, and she explains what happens to them all. Cole comes back a minute later as well and says, the door's not there anymore. I went and checked. It's just stone now. He's like, and that totally was not a dwarven door. I can tell you, we'd have made a much nicer door. It looked nothing like what we would have made. And everyone is concerned for Artemis. 
And after Shell's story, again, they all think the same thing. What was in the third chest? What was in the first chest? And who has that? Interesting. They finish up, because at this point, some of the wonder of getting all the cool treasures, a little bit of joy has been sucked out of them. Uh, they finish gathering up treasure and stuff that they want and decide it's time to get the hell out of Corman. And packing their loot inside of the chest of holding, they each have a small chest they put in there. Um, the party makes their way towards the front gates of the city. They have no problem getting there. There's no more stone elementals that give them any problem. They manage to make it to the gates. When they get to the gates, they are very sad to find this is the one place where there are bodies that clearly there was damage. Some dwarves wanted to try to escape. They felt they weren't sick. And unfortunately, the dwarven guards were forced to defend the city gates from their own people until the gates could be closed. Because at that point, only the king can open them. The high thing. They have the key and Cole makes his way up into the engineering room because, again, there's rooms that run this stuff. He's able to use the key, which, again, is inspelled and allows this to work. Um, Darsh and Ulrich and Cole and Mercy, the four of them, have to do some serious strength to move the wheel thing, to move the doors. And they're only able to get it open a tiny, tiny bit, but enough that they can squeeze through. It's going to take a whole group of dwarves and engineers to open this. It's not meant to be opened by just a small group of people. Uh, but they managed to crack it open up. Because Darsh, again, is a very strong dude. Um, and again, it, at this point, it's designed to be opened. You know, they've used the key. The gate's not trying to keep them locked in. It's just a door at this point. It's The assumption is whoever used that key is supposed to be using the key. They leave the cavern of the clan of the Ventoy and make their way back up to Central Corman, which takes another day or so, where they meet up once again with the High Thane, the High King, who is preparing to head back up to Upper Corman, leaving a small group here to check and search and stuff. They found no problems, no issues. He was a little bummed out at the amount of damage that was done to the Central Castle, but, you know, all in all, nothing that can't be fixed. Dwarves like a good challenge. So... He was very happy to hear that they were successful and that there was no more plague at this point, because there isn't, right? Um, the coal is going to return to the surface uh, immediately because he wants to let the head of his clan know what happened, um, because nobody really knows exactly what caused it. He has all this information he wants to share now. Um, and he also wants to talk about that huge room of loot that he now has the only key to. Um, that he doesn't really say that to anybody else. Only our party knows that. Um, our characters decide that they want to go to the surface too. With everything that's gone on, they're just tired of being underground. The pressure, literally, and the strain of it all, they just want to be out under the sun. Um, and so they spend the next few days making their way back up, where they spend the next several weeks hanging out uh, both on their ship and with the dwarves. The High Thane comes back out at one point to gather more people and to do stuff. He's going to be staying out here for a while now, now that he's gone and seen it with his own eyes, sending people down to start clearing out and making a place for the dwarves to start living. They're also going to start allowing small groups of regular dwarves to go to Upper Kingdom and start cleaning the place out, because they're going to need that help. 
Um, so while that's all going on, Darsh hammers out an actual trade agreement with the merchants who are very excited to uh, have access to several things. Buyers, because they're going to be they're going to need stuff to rebuild. They have no access to woods and stuff where they are. So there's going to be some goods, and if more dwarves start showing up, maybe even foodstuffs till they can get back up and running. Um, at the same time, they want to be able to sell their goods. Hmm? Important sauce. Um, but they want a way for the other dwarves to get here. They want dwarves to know the dwarven kingdom is open and that all dwarves are welcome. Uh, and so they need someone who can get them over here. Darsh is, Darsh is going to take the old Miss Dandelion ship that was his that he gave to Dandy, which is a smaller ship and can maneuver within these um, walls and such better than the Morgenstern could. And that ship is going to be used for basically the dwarves to go in and out with. He works that out. It's going to be kind of they're renting that boat. And ships can come to the edge of what was the reef, that big stone area. And then they can hop on the Mistandy line and the dwarves can go in there. So that way the dwarves are the ones controlling who's going in and out of these chasms. Right? They want an army to show up and try to steal their dwarven goods. Mercy does verify that there is, in fact, just a day and a half north of Corman, a realm gate. The dwarves found it a while ago and had no idea what it is. They have no key and they have no way to use it. But Mercy does. And the one thing Mercy is really lacking in Serenity is good quality stone and ore. There are some small quarries that they have in Serenity, but with all the building they're doing, they were running out of good quality stone. They just didn't have the facilities. So she works out a deal with uh, Cole and his thane and the merchants specifically to start getting uh, ore and such as soon as it's up they get production up and running who they say shouldn't be but a few months before they'll at least have uh, the beginnings coming and both Darsh and Mercy work it out where they're going to you know, kind of split that work between them. Uh, this is going to give Serenity access now to some high quality dwarven goods as well as well as the stone and materials that they need. After just a few weeks of waiting. I should get to the actual thing here. Um, oh, uh, Tobias also meets with the Shinar mages and talks to them about them joining in with the Brotherhood of Magic, um, letting them know that they're, uh, they would be welcome and, you know, we'll work something out. Uh, but finally, after several weeks, Duberin returns to the PCs, returns them to the surface. He walks in and he has something long wrapped up in leather. He takes it out and he hands to them a perfectly repaired Menandra. Dandy takes it, searching it, looking at it. Because Dandy has appraising and she has all of these things to just get close. And she can't find a single flaw. It looks like it's a solid piece. She would have never known it's broken. And she just smiles and with tears in her eyes, jumps up and gives Duberin a big hug. Which shocks him, but then he pats her on the back so he knows how important it is. Um, it's perfectly reforged, absolutely no problems. Um, the, these guys are all heroes to the dwarves and welcome here anytime they want. And, um, both Mercy and Darsh are going to be a way of selling goods, getting goods and delivering dwarves. So there's a lot of stuff there that's going to be useful for them. They do get some supplies from the dwarves who give them the supplies basically on free and they then hop on the Morgenstern and with the guide they had at the beginning and several others, they get guided out of the reef and they make their way back to Paxawal. Which again, you'll remember, takes almost three weeks to a month to get there. It was a long... They push it. They push it a lot. But they get there. 
I started this story originally when I was 15. By this point, I was in my late 20s, early 30s at the story we're at right now, I would say. So they book it to Paxiwal without incident. There's no problem. They stop in Arduel for just a day to gather some more supplies. Remember, that's where King Christopher is. They pass right past the elves. Uh, they didn't need to stop. They had enough supplies there. But they do grab a little in Arduel and then make their way back to Paxiwal. Upon reaching Paxiwal, they waste no time. But for Darsh to turn to Dorm and be like, get us restocked. For all I know, we're going somewhere else. Get it. And Dorm's like, on you, boss. And they go straight to the mage or to the mage tower because they need to find out about Michael. They reach him. Uh, and of course, once they get there, they're immediately taken to Lamia. Lamia seems genuinely happy to see them, especially Tobias. And says hi, but gives him a bit of a hug. Shocking. The most friendly she's ever seen she'd ever been to anybody. She takes Menander herself and inspects it, even doing a little bit of magic work. And she says, I, she goes, I'll be honest, I, I didn't know if you'd be able to do it. This is immaculate. This is perfect. This is what I would, if I was going to create this weapon, this is the quality I'd look for. She goes, you've done a wonderful job. I just don't know if it's going to be enough. And at this, everybody's like, hmm? What do you mean? Lamia has no choice but to deliver them the bad news. Over the last several months, she's worked a lot on this. And she has found absolutely no way to re-inspell Menander with the magic that it needs to free Michael. The only thing she's been able to verify is that the magic that caused this is almost on a godly level. It's incredibly powerful. But it's some type of clerical type of magic that she doesn't have access to. She even brought in Brother Lycos from the clerics. Brother Lycos is the same. He goes, it's magic power that even she can't get past. Or he can't, I'm sorry. It's, it, it, they just don't know any way to do that. From what she's found, the only person who could cast this spell is the person who cast it the last time. And Menandra is, from what they know, thousands of years old. She goes, I found no trace of what world Menandra is from. No, Menandra is not. No, she's not one of the original artifacts. No. She was created well after that. But she goes, the original caster is the only one I know of that could do that, from what I've seen. And I can't find a trace of anything or anywhere Telling us that even that world is a part of I mean, obviously part of it. Menandra's here. But I I don't know. The only area we know of is where Michael found it. But even then, he doesn't know the specific area. He was wandering through a snow area. Uh, trying to die, honestly, at that point. And she goes, I, I hate to say this to you. I genuinely am. But I don't know of a way to save Michael. Dandy starts to cry. Artemis puts her arm around her. Darsh is frustrated. Well, he and Mercy are, you know, fist clenching. They just want to hit something. Probably each other. They don't care. <laughs> and they stand there. Basically, all their hopes dashed. Everything they've done for basically nothing at this point. 
And then they hear someone clear their throat. And Tobias says, I know one way. Everyone turns and looks at them. Lamia actually looks confused. Dandy, a mo tiny bit of hope on her face. Tobias just looks at them and says, The Sands. Lamia is immediately on her feet. Tobias, I would like to speak with you in private, please. Everybody's like confused and he nods. And he, he and Lamia walk out of the room. And Dandy's like, what? Everybody waits. Dandy, waiting next to the door, using her detect noise, listening to the conversation in the hallway, only hears bits and pieces. But she hears Lamia say, it's too dangerous. And Tobias saying, that's the only way. The voices raise almost in anger. Ooh, what was that? No. Voices raise almost in anger. And then she hears Libya say forcefully and angrily, I forbid it. To which Tobias responds, You forget yourself, milady. I am not your apprentice any longer. I do not need your permission. I know the cost. The voices trail off as they move further away. Danny's no longer able to hear what's going on. But after 10 minutes, they return. Lamia, obviously upset, takes her seat back at the desk. And she says, I must under explain to you why I do not approve of this action. A long time ago, I said that Lamia and Tobias went to the Sands. Lamia came back looking 19 and pretty cute. Tobias aged a little bit. But even though they were gone for a couple months, they were gone for years of their lifetime. Lamia explains that the Sands is an interdimensional pocket outside of time created by Kiara, the goddess of time, at the creation of the universe. <clears throat> Within it is the great library, where every deed, story, and event that has ever happened anywhere is recorded. Every world, every plane, every single thing that has ever happened records into the books in this library an infinite realm of knowledge. The books themselves are portals. A person can use the book to experience, to relive events and stories. In essence, the same as traveling through time to relive the story and tales within the book that they choose. Now, they are not, in fact, going through time. What they're going through is a recreation. So nothing they do will change the timeline. They're not changing the past. It's impossible. But they can change the story while they're in it. But there are dangers in the sand. First of all, the effect of time is different there. 
And if you die in the sands, in one of these books, there's no coming back. You're outside the reach of any god who can heal you. Clerics will still have their magical powers there. But if you die in the sands, you're dead forever. Not only that, the sands themselves are a maze of their own with temptations and dangers. And finding your way out through this, of this labyrinth took them years. And it doesn't stay the same. But while you can't change time, the past, you can change the story. You can relive it. But you can only take out of the sands, out of one of these tales, what you put into it, physically. So if you walk in with your sword and your armor and your hammer, whatever the case is, and you leave the tail, you have all your stuff back. Even if you left it in there, you have all your stuff back. But anything you picked up while you were there, coins, a gem, a magic item, they don't come out with you. Physically, you can take in what you want, but you can only return with the things you took back in you. But it might be possible if the item you take in there is enspelled or magically cast upon, it could be altered. We don't know. I don't know if it's ever been tried. But if you could find a way into the sands, if you could find the book where Menandra was recast and you could somehow make it your Menandra that the spell gets cast upon instead of the one in the tail, there is a chance it could happen. The champ is teeny tiny chance. But it is much more likely that you will be lost or die there and never return. I can't tell you you can't go, but I don't recommend it. I know you love him. I think he's a great guy. But I don't think you'll be successful. I think you will die there. Even with Tobias. They turn to Tobias and Dandy goes, Do you think you can save him? Tobias looks at her and thinks, until he's thinking a second, he goes, I do. Dandy goes, Then I want to go. The rest of the heroes, no hesitation. Of course we want to go. Lamia is not happy, but she says, I will see what I can do. Return in 48 hours. Give me time to see what I can do. They're like, okay. And they bumble out. They leave. We're going to run just a couple minutes over because I've, I've got to set this up. Where was I? Uh, yes, here we go. So, over the next 48 hours, they do the regular stuff. They hit the temple, is everything okay? Nothing learned there. Danny meets with one eye. He doesn't know anything about the sands, can't really help. They hit all the regular spots. There's really no one's ever knows much about the sands. The sands are a rumored place. They may, they, the, the sands being the nickname for the goddess of time. Most people don't really know it's a place like this. It's kind of a hush hush thing. Without finding anything 
extra special. After 48 hours, they return to the Mage Tower, where they are taken to Lamia's office. But this time, not only is Lamia and Tobias there, but so are Craven and Marissa. You may not remember them. We haven't seen them since very early on. But Craven is the actual head of the Mage Tower, and Marissa is the other of the three head mages. Lamia is only one of the three, but she's the one that they've dealt with most of the time. But this is big business. All heads of the Order are now aware of the Menandu. I mean, they already knew the Menandu is true, but now they're aware of what the, these guys want to do to fix it. And I'll be honest, none of them are happy about this. For a couple of reasons. Number one, it's dangerous. They don't want to lose Tobias in there. Tobias is considered a good mage, good friend of the Order, always done good work for them. They don't think anyone, they're going to succeed. It's dangerous in there. But what they don't like the most is how they have to get there. Craven says to them, the only way to get into the sands is either by the goddess of time herself taking you there, which sometimes happens to high clerics of time when they've reached a certain point they may be taken into the tent, or they may be there doing something on a quest for Kiara. The second one is through a spell of incredible powerful magic that I don't know and no one here knows. Artemis and... Or not Artemis, I'm sorry. Tobias and Lamia had a magical item that they had come across that allowed them to get in, but it was a one-use item and it's gone. Which means we know of only one way for you to get there. There is a wizard. And this wizard, relatively powerful wizard, but he has a collection of magical items and artifacts. And we know that in his possession, he has an artifact that will allow access to the sands. We've been trying for a while to get this mage to join as part of the Brotherhood of Magic, but he's been hesitant and resistant to our requests. And to be honest, the last thing we want is you guys pissing him off. Again. Because the only artifact that we know of that can get you in the sands belongs in the personal collection of King Thomas Darkmoor. King of Garkmoor. We can reach out to him and see if he's will speak with you, if he'll entertain this, but I can't make any promises. So, the hope has also been a little bit squished, because I'm hoping most of you remember who that is. Um, he goes, I've reached out, they sit there for a while, he comes back, he goes, I've reached out to him, and he is willing to speak to you, and to hear your request. I stress this, he did not say yes, only that he will allow you to come to his kingdom, and make the request in person. It is within our power to teleport you to that area and get you there immediately. If you go, Tobias will be on be working on behalf of the Brotherhood. You must not do anything that would ruin our chances 
of getting this king as part of the Brotherhood of Magic. You have to understand the spells and the magic items and artifacts he has access to and the things that he can make don't exist anywhere else. And if they fall in the wrong hands, we're all in some trouble. It would be much better for everyone if we could have him join them on our side as a friendly guy with teams here. But if you wish to do this, I will teleport you to the Kingdom of Darkmoor. At that point, whether or not he chooses to or whether you can convince him is up to you. Without any other option or choice, the group says, yes, we're going to do that. Dandy makes arrangements with Lamia. Lamia, personally, is going to see that Michael is taken back to Serenity to the temple. She wants him, in case they don't make it back or it's not successful, they want him at home. Lamia says she will personally make sure he gets there, which Dandy appreciates. Craven says, come with me then. We have no time to waste. They're walked to a large room, magic room obviously. He casts a spell for several minutes and opens up a portal. And as they go to step in, he goes, remember, you are representing the Brotherhood of Magic. I truly wish and hope that you are successful. And hope you're able to return. But don't do anything to piss off Thomas Darkmoor. Again. A little sheepishly, Artemis and Dandy. Okay. And they walk through. And that's where we're going to stop for today. Hey, Badgie. So... That's correct. Uh, to answer some questions there, I, was, I wanted to get through that so I didn't jump back in. But yes, um... Because I can only put so much length on podcasts, um, I limit it to enough that I could do. I could probably go three hours and fit it okay. I have before. But I went three and a half hours and had to break it into two. So sometimes I don't care to go a little over by 10 or 15 minutes. But I definitely try to keep it under the three hour mark. Just so it comes out as a single episode. Um, excellent turtle. So hopefully some of you remember Thomas Darkmore and the complication that this may cause. Um, but I was excited to bring him back. A lot planned for that man. But that is where we're going to finish up for today. Thank you all for coming by and listening to my Merged Worlds tale once again. Uh, thank you for spending the time with me and Clicking like if you liked it, and subscribing to the channel, and hanging out through all of my stuff here. So, um, I appreciate that. Um, next Sunday, Merge Worlds week again. This is week one of three of Merge Worlds. So, next week we will continue with this story. Entering into, once again, the Kingdom of Darkmoor. And seeing if we can convince the man to send us into a place where we may die. I really love this part of the story. I really like the dwarf stuff. I really like this part of the story. So, we're going to call it there. Thank you all for coming by. Um, if you're watching this now, awesome. Thank you. Click like if you enjoyed it. I'd appreciate it. 
Um, if you're watching this later or listening to it on YouTube or on Spotify or iTunes, thank you very much for coming by there as well. Um, give it a click. Give it a like there. Follow a sub. A rating if you enjoy it. Um, I definitely appreciate that feedback on Spotify and iTunes as well. But for the rest of you um, who like my other stuff, I'll be streaming again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Kitty butt. 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Tomorrow we're going to be jumping into, I believe, our first episode of Stone Block 2. So, I look forward to having that fun with you again. Thank you very much for being here. Special thank you, as always, to my members uh, for your continued support of the channel and helping me grow it in that way, as well as to those folks who make the donations as well. Again, your support, continued, of the channel means a lot and helps me grow it into bigger and better things uh, and the goal to try to be a full-time gig. So thank you very much for getting me one step closer. And as always, an extra special thank you to my moderators who are the true heroes of this story. But you all have yourselves a wonderful evening. Have a wonderful Valentine's Day. This was recorded on Valentine's Day, February the 14th, 2021. So whether you're listening now or later, I hope you and the one you love had a great day. You guys have yourselves a wonderful evening, and we will see you again very, very soon. Thank you for letting me tell you my tale. Have a great day.